Hello, folks, and welcome to The Farm, a podcast dedicated to synchronisticism, parapolitics, and high weirdness in all its many forms. This is your host, Recluse, a.k.a. Stephen Snyder, the longtime curator of the Visa blog and author of the recently released A Special Relationship, Trump, Epstein, and the Secret History of the Anglo-American Establishment. If you like what you hear here today, be sure to check me out at visaview.blogspot.com. That's V-I-S-U-P-V-I-E-W, all one word, dot blogspot.com. And procure a copy of the book and my other works at the Farm's official store, which is thefarmpodcast.store. That is thefarmpodcast, all one word, dot store. All right, folks, this week's show is another in our ongoing examination of the World Anti-Communist League, or WACO as it is known around these parts. So that means this week's guest is drawn from the ranks of the WACO crew, he is my research partner and author of a forthcoming work that will be the most comprehensive account of Wackle yet published. He's Keith Allen Dennis. Keith, thank you so much for dropping by again. Thank you, Recluse. I'm sitting down here. Uh, I could climb up on my roof and I can see the Mexican border with the big wall, which now has razor wire in the in the towns that are notably on this side of the wall. And uh, <clears throat> it's very fitting for what we're going to be talking about today. I look at that wall. And first of all, a wall is a defensive structure, not offensive. Right. So this is the United States making a statement of being on defense. And when I look at that wall, I see a monument to the United States foreign policy in Latin America and the illegal alien crisis that they're always on about and the you know illegal immigration and everything is a direct result of the economic and you know military and paramilitary policies that we had going for decades in that part of the world and that's a a big 16 foot tall statement of un, about unintended consequences. So it's good to be here with you here at the end. <laughs> well, here we let's hope so. Um, but yeah, this is one of the reasons why, uh, at least for me personally, doing this show um, really means a lot. Um, certainly, I don't think that this is a topic that a lot of Americans really understand uh, nearly as well as they should, which is exactly how our foreign policy affects uh, the global south and uh, specifically South America and a lot of the um, repercussions from that. Um, Probably before we get going, uh, I should probably apologize in advance for what will inevitably be numerous mispronunciations of Spanish words. Um, I lived in Florida for approximately 20 years. Uh, Keith, as he just indicated, lives right uh, near the border with Mexico. Naturally, uh, neither one of us can speak Spanish beyond a couple of words, most likely, though Keith at least can pronounce the words reasonably well, unlike myself. Um, we did, however, avoid the temptation of recording this podcast while wearing sombrellos and fake mustaches, which we were going <laughs> to sell and uh, doga the proceeds to the Donald Day Trump Presidential Library. But cooler heads did prevail. Yeah. <clears throat> uh, Today's particular subject is a big part of uh, all of this stuff. 
All right. Up to this point, we've mostly told you about uh, a bunch of aging fascists with grand designs, but little in the way of action. Some of the Asian Wackle partners were terrible, and uh, we've given you some indication of that as well. We've talked about the cult of the Unification Church and the drug trafficking of the KMT and all of that good stuff. Of course, Wackle was effectively the visible personification of the fascist international by the 1970s. It was a strange brew of aging Nazis. Uh, budding neo-fascist, international drugs, arms traffickers, freedom fighters, cold secret societies, and the inedible former intelligence officers. It's been responsible for a lot of outrages all over the world. But if you really want to understand the true evil of Wackle and why it still matters, then you need to understand what this institution did in Latin America during the 1970s and the 1980s. Specifically, if you really want to see what Waggle and its supporters are about, then do a couple of Google searches and find some pictures of the mass graves left all over by Latin America by these various freedom fighters in Chile, in Argentina, in El Salvador, in Guantanamo, and on and on. Take a good look at those bodies and remember, if you're an American, this is what it takes to maintain your empire abroad. Now, we're not going to talk about those places in this show. Instead, we're going to talk about our neighbors to the south, Mexico. And we're going to talk about Mexico for two reasons. Because Mexico experienced its own dirty war in the 1970s, like many Latin American countries, but unlike many of those countries, it has rarely, if ever, been addressed. Victims in places like Chile and Argentina have at least had their suffering acknowledged on an international level but not so with Mexico. In fact, great lengths have been taken to cover up the extent of the dirty wars there. The other reason we're going to talk about Mexico is because it's the home base of a mysterious organization that controlled much of Wackel's Latin American colleagues and was thus responsible for much of the evil perpetuated by Wackel in Latin America during the final decades of the Cold War. This outfit was known as Los Tecos, and it was a secret society. Indeed, it appears to have been Mexico's answer to Italy's propaganda Dewey, the mysterious Masonic lodge that uh, has been closely linked to the stay-behind forces implicated in terrorism during what is known as the years of lead there. Indeed, Italy and P2 during that era are an apt comparison for what was going on in Mexico with Los Tecos, and we shall revisit that later in this installment. But... Before I get going with all of that, we need to unpack a lot of stuff, quite frankly, to properly tell you this story. We need to go all the way back to the Mexican Revolution. I'd go back even further than that, but I'm trying to keep this under three hours. So, the dating of the revolution is a bit in dispute, but the commonly accepted time frame is from November of 1910 to about the spring of 1920. As we shall see, Mexico would continue to be ravaged by the fallout from the revolution until at least the 1930s, but that's for later. As for the official revolution, here are the major points. Okay, in 1910, Mexico had been ruled by the Mexican general Porfirio Diaz for 31 years. Diaz had theoretically been democratically elected president periodically throughout that uh, three-decade period, but uh, how democratic elections are in Mexico uh, is very debatable, both then and now. Regardless, Diaz's popularity had been in decline for some time. 
1910, he was challenged by an eccentric wealthy landowner called Francisco Madero. Diaz theoretically won the election, but nobody really bought it. Madero launched a revolt, and he was supported by such notables of the era as Pancho Villa. Madero prevails and forces Diaz out in 1911. He assumes the presidency that year, but it proves to be a short one. By 1913, he is assassinated. This is typically blamed on the church, but when Madero prevailed over Diaz in 1911, he received tentative support from the priests, especially the lower clergy, and Madero had even encouraged the establishment of the National Catholic Party, or PCN. However, things started to go south after the election of 1912. While Madero is often depicted as winning decisively in one of the nation's fairest elections, in point of fact, many of the results were nullified, denying the PCN seats at the national level. This led the party to wage a mild insurrection against Madero, but without much support from the church. General Victoriano Huerta then staged a coup against Madero. While Huerta is often depicted as an agent of the Vatican, he received only tentative support from the church and the PCN. Indeed, he ultimately suppressed the PCN, the nation's largest Catholic party. Now, no one really liked Huerta, except us Yanks. The general's rise to power was largely driven by the plotting and intrigues of the U.S. ambassador, Henry Lane Wilson. Wilson, in turn, was working under the authority of President William Howard Taft, a powerhouse from Ohio who first rose to prominence in the administration of fellow Buckeye William McKinley. Taft was a firm believer in American imperialism and manifest destiny. You can certainly find out more about that in my book. Anyway, the intrigues of Wilson were so craven that President Woodrow Wilson, who succeeded Taft in 1913 and was of no relation to the ambassador, was forced to denounce Huerto's administration as illegitimate. And um, with the history of the United States and Mexico, that really must have taken something to denounce the Mexican election as being illegitimate. Few tears were shared when the general was overthrown in 1914 to buy various revolutionary forces. This plunged the nation into a full-blown civil war that lasted until 1915. Eventually, a wealthy landowner, Venestancio Carranza, with support from the Revolutionary Officers Corps of Mexico's army, consolidated power in 1915. He established the much-celebrated Mexican Constitution of 1917 and laid the ground for the elections of 1920. However, Carranza's popularity began to decline as the election approached, creating more concern about succession. This resulted in one final coup in 1920 that brought the revolutionary military officers Bavaro, Erbegon, and Plutarco Calas to power. These two generals would arguably do more than anyone to create the modern Mexican state. Erbegon was president from 1920 till 1924 and would continue to wield tremendous power in the military until his assassination in 1928. Calles succeeded him and was president from 24 till 28 and still continued to be Mexico's de facto ruler until at least the early 1930s. He was also one of the principal founders of the National Revolutionary Party, or PRI. This party... Uh, held power in Mexico from 1929 till 2000, effectively running it as a one-party state. Okay, so that's a broad overview of the revolution. But before moving on, I wanted to focus briefly on the social dimensions of the revolt. The revolution was largely driven by northern Mexico. 
Being a northern a northerner in Mexico is a lot like being a westerner in these United States. The north was long Mexico's frontier, and it generated the same type of pioneer spirit in its inhabitants that the west did here. There was also an inevitable influence from the United States, which both repelled and fascinated the northerners in equal measure. As staunch nationalists, they could not forgive the humiliation of the Mexican-American War, yeah, and yet they found much to admire in these United States, especially its strong central government, its nationalism, and its Protestantism. Conversely, they blamed old Mexico, and specifically the priests, the natives, and the peasants for Mexico's decline. They had kept the nation wedded to a colonial and even medieval worldview, which kept the nation backwards. They saw themselves as men of refinement and culture in contrast to the Indians and peasants who clung to their, to their traditions and superstitions. And most of all, they blamed the church, which they saw as standing in the way of the glorious national revolution that would restore Mexico to its proper glory. Virtually all of the revolutionary leaders, beginning with Madero, hailed from the north. Thus, the Mexican Revolution was in part an effort to subjugate the rest of Mexico to the values of the North, which in turn were arguably shaped as much by Anglo-Saxon culture as Spanish. Keith, is there anything you wanted to add here? Yeah, and I'll, I'll start first by saying, <clears throat> you know, uh, for, for your listeners, just, just so we're all aware, neither Recluse nor myself are anything close to being experts in Mexican history. But it's an opportunity to hit the books and to learn some things. And I think uh, I can speak for both of us when we, we say we definitely did in the process of developing this podcast and uh, trying to give a good deep dive to your listeners demands such a treatment. So, um, yeah, um, in, in the U.S., the saying was kind of go west and in old Mexico it was more like go north. Uh, like you said, that's where the Mexican frontier was. Um, and yes, the U.S. did pick off a great deal of that territory, probably definitely more than half of the landmass of of Mexico, because um, the Mexican state got off to a rough start and it had a rough first century. It's had a rough go of it the whole time, really. Um, you know, the. the the reason Mexico had its own war for independence from Spain um, concluded in 1821. And there was a lot of factional fighting and, you know, kind of warlordism and stuff. And this new nation is trying to find its footing. And then 15 years later, there's this thing called the pastry war in which the French blockaded basically all of Mexico's Gulf ports, invaded Veracruz. And that's around the time that the, uh, the Texians, the Anglo and Scots-Irish settlers in Texas declare their independence from Mexico, you know, taking advantage of a, of a weak Mexican state was off balance by French attack. So fast forward another decade and the U.S. annexes Texas. Uh, President Polk does a little of that provocation, false flag magic, and then you get the U.S.-Mexican War. Um, but even with the loss of most of that territory um, all the way to the Pacific, you know, uh, the area that became, you know, when the borderline moved south to where it is now, that area south of that, the northern part of Mexico was still fairly undeveloped and it was still fairly kind of the frontier and away from civilization, kind of an analog to the western United States in, um, you know, in the same way. 
Um, and so they had kind of their own uh, Yankee cowboy kind of uh, dynamic that we had here, except instead of these East Coast blue blood, you know, uh, guys that we have here, they have these old world Spanish Catholic um, and colonial remnants in the southern part that they're trying to kind of get away from and make their own way. Uh, and like the U.S., the Mexicans had their share of wars with Native Americans, um, like the Comanche, the Kiowas, and the Apaches. The uh, the Apaches, they were still fighting into the 20th century, if you can believe that. Um, so while all of those other wars and that the, loss of territory – sorry, Not to interrupt you, but uh, some, of the, um, some of the wars were going on into like what around the time of the First World War, right? Um, right, yeah. The, the yeah, Sierra just Madres. Yeah, just to Sierra put that Madres, uh, that's, you know, Pancho Villa and, and, you know, those those famous mountains. I mean, the Apaches really knew how to take advantage of that very rugged territory. And they were masters of ambush and just hard to get them out of there, you know, and that's what that's what they were trying to do. And it took them took them a long time. Um, and the, the, the enmity between the Mexicans and the Apaches was was legendary in Geronimo you know, went to his grave. Like I've forgiven all these people, whatever, but not Mexicans, you know, they really did not like the Mexicans. Um, so, um, those raids from these nomadic, you know, horsebound, very capable, very expert, um, war bands had the same effect of, of, of keeping the ability to develop, you know, and modernize and, and bring infrastructure into those areas. It had the same effect that it had here. Um, and like in the Western U S there's, there was gold in them hills, you know, and that drove a lot of this stuff. And, and, and Mexico was the, like the crown jewel colony of the Spanish empire, uh, before they became independent and Mexican silver fueled a lot of Spanish imperial, you know, both on the European continent and, and, and around, you know, Latin America and everywhere else. Uh, so there was a lot of uh, mining expertise that it had developed, not just from Mexicans themselves, but also a lot of the Native American uh, groups that were more sedentary and not nomadic, like the Tarahumara and the uh, Opata and the Yaqui. But um, but anyway, um, in the early days, you know, copper had value, but it wasn't as valuable as it would become with the advent of electricity, you know, it, it, it almost was like, if you find copper, well, there might be gold or silver nearby. And that's what, that's what copper is good for is an indicator that keep looking, you might find actual gold, but then with electricity coming on those areas where there was big ore bodies of copper, they became very strategically important. Um, so, U.S. is at war with the Apache in New Mexico and Arizona. The Mexicans are at war with them in, in Sonora, especially in these northern Sonora towns like Cananea and Fronteras and Nacozari. They opened these big copper mines in the last decades of the 19th century. And on the other side in Arizona, you have Bisbee and Clifton Morency and areas around Tucson and the silver mines in Tombstone and the big uh, what's now called the Tyrone mine near Silver City, New Mexico. There's this great book that I read a few years ago called um, Fugitive Landscapes by a guy named Samuel Truitt that talks about that time, this time, and, and, and this place that I'm in. Uh, he called it the Copper Borderlands. 
And this <clears throat> sudden strategic importance of these these areas really put a lot of pressure to get these Indian wars wrapped up, you know, uh, for, you know. And so that 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 happened. Right. Um, and the Apaches would uh, use the Mexican border to their advantage. You know, they'd flee to one side or the other. So that the army chasing him would have to stop. And this led to some official and unofficial agreements between the U.S. and Mexico to allow, well, if you're chasing Apaches, you can come over here. That's fine. We won't count it as a a repeat of the, you know, Polk's adventures in the Mexican War and that kind of thing. Um, as for the Anglo influence on northern Mexican culture, um, I'd have to defer to your expertise, Mr. Recluse, on that. But my my guess is it's kind of a mixed bag. I mean, you know, there's some forgotten history there, but there, there was a lot of uh, racial purges and ethnic cleansing and appropriation of Mexican property by whites in the years, especially after the Civil War. Um, if, you know, your family had been here and the border moved, not you, <coughs> and now you're a Mexican family or a rancher or whatever in the United States, and here comes the the KKK. And they take it away or just the local little good citizens brigade. Um, you know, the, the Comanches would steal horses and mules from Mexico and sell them to the Texans or, for a while, you know. And um, so, you know, they had a lot of enmity with <clears throat> Anglo culture as much as they had admiration for it. And, uh, you know, we know about the Klan and, and they're kind of famous for the stuff they did in the deep South, but it's not maybe as well known to some people that, that they were actually pretty active all the way out to California. And, you know, weren't a lot of African Americans around, but there were, there were Mexicans and they would, you know, go after them and, and in Texas. And, but in Texas, I should say the Klan also went after Norwegian and German immigrants as well. No kidding. So (laughs) it's just, a little interesting factoid of clans, clansmen against the Germans. I've never heard that, but apparently it was a thing. Maybe the the northern Mexicans, maybe it wasn't so much that they had this admiration for Anglo culture per se, although maybe they did. You know, I'm not disputing what you're saying, but it was maybe that common, you know, Western pioneer hard scrabble way of life and mindset. I mean, that's something that people on both sides of the border would have had in common mining, ranching, you know, having to deal with attacks by Apaches, things like that. This can be kind of a bonding. Uh, yeah. Sort I mean, of I thing. think, a, I mean, I think a lot of it was sort of like the shared kind of self-sufficiency. I mean, that's exactly of the kind of yeah. rugged, you know, pioneer, I mean, mindset, which I think even though despite the animosity between both sides frequently, I think they could kind of look at each other and see that kind of common uh, characteristic <clears throat> that they both shared in the wilderness yeah. effectively. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's not something we're really going to get into here, but certainly after the Civil War, I mean, you did have a lot of American players that uh, began to intervene in Mexico. I mean, of course, you had a lot of Confederate veterans um, who had eventually made their way there. But um, much more importantly were um, the fundamentalist Mormon sects that ended up in northern Mexico, who uh, really to this very day still continue to wield a 
tremendous amount of power in northern Mexico, though we don't really talk about that a lot. Um, yeah, yeah. I heard an old, I heard a saying one time that, that goes to that, and it's referring to this area, the Copper Borderlands, and it was said that uh, <clears throat> Masons, Mexicans, Mormons, and miners built it, built this this area. <laughs> We'll get into that more in a minute, I guess. But, uh, yeah, yeah it's a strong presence. You know, when uh, polygamy was outlawed um, or proscribed by their, their church, a lot of them, including uh, Mitt Romney's ancestors, mm-hmm. went, went south where they could do their thing. And it should be emphasized. I mean, a lot of these uh, Mormon families do have ties to some of the most prominent ones, uh, I mean, who are still active to this day. And uh, many of those descendants down there hold dual Mexican uh, U.S. citizenship, which um, has also been a bit of a sore spot in Mexico for a while now. But um, again, don't want to digress too much. Yeah. Okay, so there is a regional aspect to this, the conflict, the Mexican Revolution, but there was also a spiritual one. Old Mexico was a Catholic nation through and through. While the men of the North may have found much to admire in American Protestantism, what really drove them, as Keith was just alluding to, was Freemasonry. And make no mistake about it that uh, they would enshrine masonry into the modern Mexican state. In 1929, President Portes Gil declared, in Mexico, the state and Freemasonry have been one and the same in recent years. And he wasn't kidding. One had to be a mason to be appointed to any position of importance in the Mexican government and the military by that particular point in time. While masonry may not have been as crucial in uh, the founding of Mexico as it was here, it was instrumental in creating the modern Mexican state. The Masonic lodges brought a certain degree of efficiency and professionalism with them that was lacking in much of the broader society. They predated the trade unions and would provide them with an organizational structure. When the modern government was being built, the lodges produced sorely needed organization, uh, organizational charts and cadres. And much of the emerging managerial class, the teachers, the labor leaders, the agrarian commissions, uh, commissioners, the municipal presidents were drawn from its ranks. And of course, the same was true of uh, the Army's officers' corps, of course. The rise of masonry in the Mexican state began with Francisco Madero, who was a prominent Freemason. <clears throat> but masonry alone wasn't the only esoteric doctrine driving the revolution. Again, we turn to Madero, who also had a keen interest in theosophy and spiritualism, among other things. And what's more, his personal physician by 1911 was a well-connected German known as Arnaldo Krumheller. <laughs> I think that's how it's pronounced. Um, Krumheller was an occultist as well as being a German spy, because frequently, a lot of times, magicians do moonlight as spies. Germany had a keen interest in Mexico during both of the world wars due to its closeness to the U.S. and obviously the natural resources as well. Tensions among the European powers were already high when Madero came to power and the Germans appeared to have attempted to ingrain themselves with the new Mexican president as part of the lead up to what was then dubbed the Great War. Krumheller's occult credentials were impeccable. He knew many of the leading figures of that era, including Steiner, Pappas, and, of course, Crowley. 
and he was involved in masonry, spiritualism, and theosophy, as well as Gnosticism and even Martinism. The latter will be especially important going forward, so do keep that in mind, guys. Now, Keith, uh, you're the one who got me interested in Madero's occult dabblings in the broader context of Freemasonry and the Mexican Revolution. You got anything to add here? Yeah, yeah, I do. And what a weird, weird story that is. Um, I used to listen. I used to listen to a podcast called uh, "A Cult of Personality," and 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 there was a uh, an episode that the guy uh, had on with a woman named C. M. Mayo, who had written a book called "Metaphysical Odyssey into the Mexican Revolution," and um, <clears throat> this came out in two thousand eight. And the author, Mayo, had uh, been married, and earlier in her life, she'd been married to the Mexican finance minister, and so she had a little higher level of access. And she was writing a book about Mexico in the 19th century, and she got to go into Madero's archives, uh, wherever they're held, some museum or something, I can't remember right now, but um, and got to see some of his personal effects, like his Masonic regalia. And, and her eyes lit onto this little book called the Spiritist Manual. Uh, and the author, it said on the cover's name was Bima, B-H-I-M-A. And uh, she said, what's that? And, you know, and she said, well, that was uh, that was Madero's spiritualist, you know, guide to spiritualism. And she's like, what? You know, uh, and apparently nobody had known or it had been quickly forgotten if it was widely known that Francisco Madero was a spiritualist, you know, not quite guru, but it's it definitely considered himself enough of an expert to write a book instructing other people about all these secret doctrines and stuff. And um, and so the the curator is like, yeah, nobody knows about this. Everybody's forgotten about it. And she's like, I, I've got to get a copy. And so sh sure enough, she gets a Xerox copy of this whole thing and gets into his diaries. And the guy, Madero, um, had been uh, contacted through the spirit realm, not by some secret chiefs or whatever, but a simple fellow Mexican who called himself Jose that uh, was giving Madero all kinds of positive instructions and telling him, you know, you have a, a courageous endeavor you're embarking upon with this revolution. You need to purify yourself and live clean and eat, eat your vegetables and pray a lot. And by the way, finish your spiritualist book because that's a spiritual thing itself. And, and, and it's all to build him up to do this, this great deed and become what Mexicans call the, their apostle of democracy. Um, and in the spiritual that's republished as the second half of, of this book that Mayo put out 12 years ago, there's a, there's a reproduction of his, of his manual. And it's all this, you know, in vogue um, theosophical claptrap and Krishna and Moses and this and that Hindu, you know, all of that Blavatsky kind of stuff. And Madero was also like a faith healer, like a magnetic magnetism, hypnotic, you know, that whole cutting edge of 19th century spiritual science. Um, 
and it's just it's crazy. It's crazy because this this book was published like you know like twelve years ago, and it revealed these things that almost no one knew about. the The idea that this Francisco Madero, the revolutionary, was made possible by Francisco Madero, the Theosophist uh, spiritualist, is like is just mind blowing. Um, yeah. Uh, it, the idea that he would have this contact with this simple Mexican peasant from the spirit world uh, totally consummate with his own humility, you know, it's, it's something else. And, and this is when I read that book and it's been a long time, it really got me onto this this idea of like, wow, here's a thing that manifested this this world changing event, definitely a Mexico changing event. And it comes out of the fringe. It comes out of the like astral plane or whatever. And there's so many examples of that where this fringe defines the center kind of thing. It just it really gets me. Um, but. But uh, but he ran with the Spiritist Society in Mexico, which was suppressed right around 1915 when this when this this whole, you know, that area you were talking about a minute ago. And in this age, this mumbo jumbo theosophical stuff was a lot more popular than people think today i was looking at uh well i mean it's certain i I kind of argue the new age movement is really just a rebranded version of theosophy so i mean kind of theosophy itself has fallen off the wayside but its uh successors i guess are about as popular as ever basically oh yeah but this was kind of like the golden age of it um and i i saw this newspaper front page uh from El Paso from 1906 and on the front page of it, there's this like whole column taken up by some spiritual, like astral plane, psychic life coach guy talking about your true nature and I can help you find it and all this kind of stuff. And it's just, it's just so weird, you know, um, some psychic friends network, Miss Cleo kind of stuff, but it's like on the front page of an El Paso newspaper in 1906. It's just, you know, it just tells you like, I wasn't going looking for that, but I just saw it on there. I'm like, oh, my God, you know. Um, but, you know, he ran in these – Madero ran in these spiritual circles. So, you know, one thought that I had was what if, you know, he had been put on his divine mission through hypnosis by one of his spiritualist colleagues? What if this Jose was, you know, really an adept – from the spiritual society. And then, and then I just kind of have to slap myself and say, no, just maybe he was totally sincere and you could just take it for what it is and not be so suspicious, Keith, you know? Um, but all the same, the Mexican revolution, uh, started on the astral plane, <laughs> apparently. <laughs> but about, I want to, I want to come back to something though, about Freemasonry in Mexico. Cause you're, you're talking about Madero, kind of his era being the rise of the Mexican state, uh, Freemasonry in the Mexican state. And you referred to a politician who said they've been quite intertwined in recent years. And I'll tell you something. Uh, I don't want to mischaracterize you here if, if I'm getting it wrong, but Masonry in Mexico goes back to the beginning. It goes back to the time of, of their seeking independence from Spain, believe it or not. Um, uh, there, that that war starts around the beginning of the second decade of the 19th century. Um, and I'll just throw this factoid out of here: the, the president Madero dethroned in that revolution Porfirio Diaz, uh, 
was himself elected as the first Grand Master of the Grand Lodge of the Federal District of Mexico in 1883. Federal District is like a District of Columbia for us. You know, it's like a city state, you know. And there was like a dozen Scottish Rite Lodges that that uh, Madero's predecessor was the Grand Master of. And, uh, and I learned this from a book called Gould's History of Freemasonry. It's this multi-volume work published in the 30s in the United States, and it traces the history of the fraternity all over the world. And um, <laughs> the reason I'm aware of that book, and I'll just I'll drop a bomb on your listeners here. Um, I actually used to be a Mason myself. And we'll just have a little moment of silence as all credibility for everything I've ever said on your podcast. <laughs> in the past or in the future now just drains out and you can and now we can just dismiss anything i say as just some masonic sorcery right <laughs> i'm sorry i'm sorry recluse that's uh, all right man but uh but but i was i was uh, and this was a long time ago i was in it for about three years um never went past the third degree into any of the other bodies or whatever but when i say as I did in the first podcast that we recorded together months ago, that I'm a, a conspirator in recovery. I wasn't fucking around. <laughs> I really, I took it to the nth degree and infiltrated the Masonic Lodge uh, many years ago and spent three years in it. And I'm glad I did. And uh, I'm glad I got out and it wasn't hard. There was no like, you know, dead deer in my front yard or any kind of thing like that. But, uh, but when I, joined i found these uh torrent you know the torrent websites these like pirate bay or whatever and i just got like gigs and gigs of stuff about masonry downloaded and almost all of it was written by masons themselves all these texts you know the proceedings of the grand lodge of illinois 1928 you know it's like 500 pages anyway get back on the subject gould's history of of freemasonry so he has a section about mexico and so I pulled that up um, because I remembered seeing that years ago. I'm like, well, maybe let's see what the Masons have to say about Masonic history. Because, you know, for being a secret society, they're remarkably forthright about a lot of stuff. And these guys have pushed a lot of paper over the centuries. It's just amazing. Their own publishing houses. and They're keeping these meticulous records of all kinds of stuff. And it's it's a big um, collection of little bureaucracies. And so they just churn out all this paper and you can, you know, and they'll tell you what's up. So, uh, so the first thing I, I, I want to say about it is, you know, in, in your listeners probably know this, there's, there's two main branches of, of masonry, right? That they, they call them the appended bodies. And this would be the York Rite and the Scottish Rite. Uh, and the, the York Rite is generally considered to be the most faithful rendering of pure original British Freemasonry, the original, you know, and the Scottish Rite is kind of like the result of Masonry moving onto the European continent, especially France, because uh, the Scottish Rite is it's like this system. Of, it's a it's a, a collection of a bunch of different degrees from various continental yeah. Masonic systems, mostly, mostly French. It, yeah. 
Yeah, it ties in a loss to the uh, the Jacobite revolt that was big in uh, Scotland, of course, during this era. I mean, that's, you know, if you guys have ever kind of wondered why it's referred to as the Scottish Rite, you had effectively all of these expat Scotsmen, uh, the Jacobites living in France um, after, you know, the aftermath. There were a couple of different revolts, but, you know, generally after right. one of the two revolts, people <laughs> went to France for a while to let things settle down back in the UK. Uh, they would end up there. Um, but that's kind of an interesting dynamic to this is that, you know, you don't really hear this talked about a lot, but um, the Scottish Rite was really very much uh, a Catholic centric version of uh, Freemasonry from the very beginning. I mean, many of the Jacobites were Catholics and a lot of the support from this came from both the Vatican and uh, the King of France. Uh, and this was, of course, a yeah, France was very much a Catholic country as well. It was it was definitely more compatible with Catholicism and with chivalry and the kinds of, um, you know, European cultural branches that Freemasonry is normally considered to be very much against the crown and the cross, you know, kind of thing. But the Scottish Rite was, I mean, for example, that whole idea about the Knights Templar uh, being the forerunners of Masonry. Like I, I was a Mason for three years. I got to see what it was like inside. And that just, it just doesn't jibe, you know, it's like an order of chivalric knights that owe their total allegiance to the Pope because they're Catholic. Like what, you know, <clears throat> but if you're this yeah, European uh, continental yeah, type that wants to have a, this, uh, this trace, you know, to this traditionalist kind of thing, then sure. Templarism is good. Right. What were you going to yeah. say, Request? I was going to say, yeah, that's one of the more curious um, aspects about a lot of the continental uh, Freemasonry. They seem to be really obsessed with what were ultimately Catholic military orders. I mean, obviously the Templar, which, you know, again, is often forgotten, but they were from the beginning a Catholic military order. And this is also very much true of the uh the other group that uh, ended up with many of their possessions, and that is a organization now known as the Sovereign Military Order of Malta, more commonly known as the Knights of Malta, and uh, right. from earlier times, it's Knights Hospital. But, uh, you know, these two orders have a major place of reverence in many of the continental branches of Freemasonry, and they were thoroughly Catholic military orders. So, you know, think about yeah. that. <clears throat> yeah, and then if you look at Morals and Dogma, which is... Uh... Albert Pike's dagger into Masonry, in my opinion, you know, in Masons, you have your Pikeophiles and your Pikeophobes. And I was a, in the Pikey no likey camp, um, his theosophical books, bookstop or doorstop, uh, morals and dogma. They talk about a theosophical text. It definitely is like, everything is one. Buddha was the first Mason, you know, this kind of thing. And it's the most occulty of all the branches and it's the most catholic compatible of all the branches and it's got the most occult mumbo jumbo especially after pike of all the branches and it's got all of these titles that very much suggest this royal aristocratic thing you know the the supreme knight of perpetual title mongering or the sublime prince of the royal whatever you know they've just got all the stuff that it, it just it seems like antithetical to what masonry is actually like blue lodge regular plain vanilla you know but anyway um and that was a turnoff for me with the scottish right but that's kind of beyond the subject here so let me kind of get back to it um 
but uh, the, the thing I liked about the Blue Lodge experience that I had is kind of this meritocracy, you know, it was like this little small bureaucracy and it really kind of, I wasn't expecting this, but it really made me appreciate the American form of government. And it really kind of resolved some daddy issues with Jehovah and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> it's really interesting how it made me more patriotic and God fearing. And this is again, contrary to the, all of, you know, the people out there that have just watched just enough YouTube videos to become experts on the, on the subject. I'm sure are going to, take you to task for having a satanic scumbag like me on your show. But, um, but back to the subject when it comes to this thing. Okay. So I clipped out some stuff. I made some notes, um, from Gould's history of Freemasonry. Okay. Um, and I'll just read some of this to you and kind of skip through some of it. And here's what he says. The so-called Scottish rite was introduced into Mexico, then the principal colony of Spain, by civil and military officers of the monarchy during the year 1813. And after this, lodges were erected by the Grand Lodge of Louisiana at Veracruz and Campeche in 1816 and 1817. And the example thus set was followed by the Grand Lodge of Pennsylvania, under which body a lodge was established at Alvarado in 1824. A period of confusion next ensued during which masonry and politics were so interwoven as to render quite hopeless any attempt at their separate treatment. So that's, that's a Masonic perspective on the early history of Freemasonry in Mexico. So present at the creation. Um, and by the way, that 1813 period when these Masons first start coming over, this they're coming over from Spain and Spain is under attack and maybe occupation. I don't remember by Napoleon's army at the time. So here you have the Masonic spreading of revolution, right? They're bringing over these Masons. I mean, that that's an easy narrative to draw from that, but let me, let me keep reading from Gould here. Um, soon the entire population of the country became divided into two factions, the Escoceses and the Yorkinos. In other words, the Scottish and the York, right? The former, the Scottish Rite, who represented the aristocracy, check, were in favor of moderate measures under a central government or a constitutional monarchy. These were the, the latter, the Yorkinos, were the advocates of republican institutions and the expulsion of the old or native Spaniards. The Escoceses, originally the Scots Mason, numbered among their members all who, under the ancient regime, had titles of nobility. The Catholic clergy, without exception, many military officers, together with all the native Spaniards of every class. So the Republican Party, according to one set of writers, viewing with dismay the progress of their opponents, resolved to, quote, fight the devil with his own fire and therefore organized the rival faction on which they bestowed the name Yorkinos, the members of which were supposed to be adherents of the York Rite. And then he goes on to talk about beginning in the 1820s, there's all these political clubs uh, start to get formed under the banner of the York Rite in Mexico. And the general idea is that these guys, these Yorkinos, wanted to um, replace the traditional crown and cross government with a, with a bunch of bureaucrats and technocrats, you know, uh, 
ambitious office hunt office hunters is the the negative characterization that he offers there but it's clear what they're talking about you know get rid of this traditionalist government and let's have something more modern and the scottish right was against them on that which is just really interesting later on in one of these um some correspondence that, that these Mexican Masons had with their American brethren um, in some political conflict that they'd had where the one guy had vanquished the other guy, a Yorkino killing a Scottish right guy. Uh, instead of saying our sort of political faction prevailed in the field of battle, it was actually our lodge over their lodge. <laughs> so very much entwined, right? So I just thought all that was really interesting and it, it really goes to, to show you how, how deep it goes. And again, oh, yeah. Porfirio Diaz becomes this grandmaster of all these lodges later on. I mean, it was just from the beginning. And one last thing from Gould that kind of goes to what we were talking about a minute ago about the potential affinity or what grounds there might've been for affinity between the pioneers of Mexico and the pioneers of uh, the United States. They had, something called a Grand Lodge of the Pacific in northern and western uh, New Mexico or Mexico. Um, there was a, was it the jurisdiction of that Grand Lodge was Sonora along the U.S.-Mexican border and Sinaloa on the Pacific coast and Baja, California. And I'll read one more quote. Um, Nogales, Hermosillo, Mazatlan, Los Machis, Navajoa, Culiacan and Ciudad Obregón, he found Americans who had been raised in the United States and had cast their lot with the Masons of the Grand Lodge of the Pacific. And without exception, the expressions of these Masons were commendary of the work and spirit of their Mexican brethren and their lodges. There is a strong American spirit on the west coast of Mexico, and the influence of the American Masons there is evident. It's a clue. You know, it's Absolutely. a <clears throat> and then and, you and know. one one other thing I want to say about that I'm I'm sorry I'm just just one final thought about oh. this which you can see from Gould, um and and I, I want to mention real quick that um over the weekend the Conspiranormal podcast great guys smart guys you've been on them that that's a, that speaks to their intelligence Doctor Future um they had that was it Richard Spence Richard B Spence yeah the guy you had on before awesome to listen to that. And he did a whole thing about secret societies on the conspiranormal thing over the weekend and was talking about the Scottish right or the continental lodges in Europe being more revolutionary while the York right was more representative of the British establishment. and was not particularly revolutionary. And that made a lot of sense. But if you hear what I just said about Mexico, it's flipped, right? The Scottish right guys in Mexico are the ones that want to preserve the ancient regime and the York right are the revolutionaries. And it just goes to show you something I've long felt about masonry. Um, it's not ever driving the bus. You know, it might be the bus, um, but it's always like um, – malleable to whatever uh schemes that its members are up to there's nothing mm. inherently revolutionary or subversive about it unless you call being able to vote 
having holding elections to be revolutionary, which, you know, well, that was time, considered the were, case. Yeah. Yeah. And the, the book, uh, Revolutionary Brotherhood, starts out with uh, these Masons being arrested coming over the channel from England and these, you know, these Parisian secret police from the crown are interrogating these Masons. And they're, it's not like, you know, is it true you ate an unbaptized baby last week at your meeting or whatever? No, it's, it's, is it true you held an election of officers? <laughs> Cause that's bad. That's, we don't want that getting out to the people. You know what I mean? But um, yeah, so it's, it's just this thing where it's like silly putty. It could have a really different character in different places and times and in different countries. Well, there and also seems like there's that stuff. Kind of, there's, you know, I mean, it kind of seems like there's also sort of that Catholic Protestant divide through, you know, kind of going through Freemasonry. That's, uh, I mean, it's certainly I've noticed, I think you've noticed it too, but it's really not, you know, uh, addressed very much when you are uh, going into the history of Freemasonry. Yeah. Well, I'll, I'll leave it there. I could kind of, you know, I could go off and talk about that all day. And it's, it's, it's interesting because now I get to kind of talk about this because we're, these are the kind of talking points you sent me like, Ooh, let's, let's get nerdy on the yeah. Mason. Thing. But please continue, sir. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, but this is definitely one of the reasons why uh, doing this particular show was exciting to me was, you know, just going into the, the history of secret societies in Mexico, because I mean, Mexico, it really is very evident, uh, the role that they have played. I mean, it's not really talked about very much in English accounts of the history of Mexico. Right. And certainly there, they know about the role that secret societies have played. And it's just fascinating to see how open it is. Whereas, you know, in the United States, we constantly hear about how, you know, it's, you know, secret societies don't really have any influence at all. It's just a bunch of uh, kooks who believe that. Well, you would have to probably uh, dismiss the entire nation of Mexico as a bunch of kooks on that uh, line of thought. Ah. So, uh, <laughs> right. Uh, all right. So that was the Mexican Revolution. We've just sort of given you a lot of different takes uh, on. On to the history of the Tecos. Allegedly, they emerged in the aftermath of the Cristero Revolt uh, after it was defeated. The war lasted from 1926 until 1929, though reverberations would continue to be felt until the 1930s. Now, there are a lot of misconceptions about the Cristero movement that need to be cleaned up before we can proceed. Typically, it is depicted as a reactionary push against the secular Mexican state. However, compelling accounts by the likes of Jean Muir show that the Cristero Revolt was largely a genuinely populist uprising of the peasants and the indigenous peoples. And they faced not only opposition from the Masonic national government and the United States, but also from the Vatican itself. The Mexican Catholic Church had vigorously embraced social reform and was very popular among the masses, much to the charging of many of the previously mentioned interests. There were, however, several reactionary and largely middle-class Catholic movements that attempted to latch on to the Cristeros. Uh, they trace back to the administration of Diaz and may have had their origins with a French Jesuit named Bernardo Bergion. Bergiond has been linked to several nationalist groups that later emerged during Madero's rise, but the two most noteworthy are the National League for the Defense of Religion, or LNDR, and the Catholic Action of Mexican Youth, or ACJM. Los Tecos later directly linked themselves to the latter organization. As to the former one, the LNDR, 
Per Jason Berry and Gerald Renner in Vows of Silence, it had an influence on another secretive Mexican Catholic sect known as the Legionaries of Christ. Legionaries are not well known in the U.S. or the rest of the English-speaking world, but they wielded tremendous power in Mexico and other parts of Latin America and even a few European nations for decades. They're a bit like a Hispanic version of Opus Dei, and those two groups have had a complex relationship over the years. The Legionaries of Christ have been in decline for some years now, and that's due to the sexual abuse linked to the order. Uh, the longtime head was even implicated in abusing children, even his own children. Uh, Is that Maciel? Ma- Maciel, uh, Maci- Father? Mar- yeah. yeah, Marciel, Maciel, yes, yes, Mar- yes. Marciel, yeah. Uh, yeah, he was quite a figure. <laughs> you know who also... loves Pizzagate conspiracies? The Pope. Yeah, look oh. over there. Look over there, guys. <laughs> yeah, anyway, go ahead. All right, he was, um, Maciel, he was a relation of several leading LNDR figures um, whom he claimed to have aided as a child, though there is uh, much dispute as to how much of that was embellished. <laughs> now, I know when one is talking about Mexican cults and secret societies in this era, it becomes inevitable that Mexican synarchy will be invoked. So there you go. It also grew out of the ashes of the Cristero Revolt and eventually spawned the National Synarchist Union, a political party. So yes, synarchy actually had a full-blown political party in Mexico at one point. We had Richard B. Spence on, as Keith had just uh, been alluding to, uh, to talk about uh, this outfit a little while ago, and he was skeptical about ties between Mexican synarchy and the French variety. But, as we just talked about earlier, Pappas had a presence in Mexico before the revolution. This likely means that there were Martinist lodges in Mexico well before the Cristero Revolt, and if there were Martinist lodges, there was surely synarchy. Obviously, yeah. this is far from confirming the connection, but it does illustrate that there is a possibility of overlap, especially since Martinism typically had more appeal to Roman Catholics than any other form of Masonry. Can, can I pa- pause you there real quick? Oh, sure. Go for it, man. This, this goes to the same thing I was talking about. Madero's revolution comes out of the fringe, comes out of the astral plane. Yeah. Uh, synarchy radiates out of Martinist lodges. You know, Republican democracy and bureaucratic institution building radiates out of the little twilight fringe of Masonic lodges. It, it's this thread, you know, where the secret societies, they have this little model or in the case of Madero, it's one guy or or you could say by extension, his little spiritualist group that he was part of. And reality itself is bent by the stuff that happens behind these little secret society doors. It's Absolutely. just fascinating. It Please is, continue. Sorry, sorry for the interruption, but it's, oh, it's all right. It's all right. Because you know, if you're saying wherever you see Martinus lodges, you see synarchy. Well, you know, this is this is this is my point. The fringe defines the center. <clears throat> Absolutely. Now, Madero was certainly aware of Martinism as well. Many of the cadres who drifted into the orbit of the LNDR and the ACJM had supported Madero in their youth before backing the PCN. Later, Madero's brother, Emilio, would lend tentative support to these middle-class Catholic groups, Pierre-Jean, Janet Muir. So yeah, the possibility certainly exists that the Mexican variety of synarchy did bear some influence from its French counterpart. Okay, 
As for the Tekos and Synarchy, those are some muddy waters. The uh, LaRoche outfit claims that uh, the aforementioned Jesuit, uh, French Jesuit Bernardo Bergiond, uh, who had helped set up the Tecos, had also been involved with Mexican synarchists during the 1930s and 1940s. However, the principal source of the allegations uh, come from a Mexican book, whose title I'm just going to bypass here, uh, by Mario Gill. It was El Cinerico, so something like that. Uh, El are... yeah. Yes, yes, yes. These are... Pretty incredible claims, and I'm a bit hesitant to endorse them without more compelling evidence than uh, LaRoche, than a LaRoche show and a lone book from the 1960s, but that does not mean that they are without merit. Now, Keith and I have both been through Stefan Pisani's Tecco's papers from Hoover, which were the principal source material for the Anderson's account of this outfit in Inside the League. From what we found, the Tecos did have some links to some former synarchists, and their ideologies were very similar, but there does not appear to have been a direct tie. Indeed, it is likely that they were competing for the respective hearts and minds within a certain segment of the Mexican populace with the synarchists. So, with that out of the way, let's finally get into the origins of the Tecos, now that we're about an hour into the show. <laughs> Not much is known about them in the interwar period after um, the Cristero Revolt and before World War II. Allegedly, the French Jesuit, whom we have just been discussing, Bernardo Bergiond, helped set up the original organization. In order to counter the anti-Catholic government, Bergiond sought to craft an opposition movement that consisted of a double organization. One group would concern itself with mass political action, while the other would be devoted to social action. But above these two organizations would be a group of clandestine leaders who were organized as a secret society. This hypothetical secret society became a reality, and it was called Los Tecos. Arguably the most important figure in the history of the Tecos was a mysterious character named Carlos Fiesta Gallardo. Gallardo rose to, prom rose to prominence in the Tecos around the time of the Second World War. What exactly he was up to during this time is much disputed, but there is little question he was a Nazi agent. Now, while this may seem shocking in this day and age, there are two things to keep in mind. One, as we illustrated earlier, <clears throat> the Germans had been involved in intrigues in Mexico prior to the First World War. Mexico was hugely important strategically for launching operations into the U.S., so the Nazis would have had a very practical interest in it. But secondly, a lot of Mexico's upper hierarchy were still largely Spanish ethnically and looked down on the more indigenous looking of their countrymen. This is especially true of someone like Gallardo, who was very European looking. Uh, I mean, to the right. point that I believe he actually had blonde hair even. So, yeah. <laughs> so what was Gallardo up to during World War II? According to the Andersons, he spent the bulk of the conflict in Berlin what he did there is shrouded in mystery, but there have been allegations that he was a confidant of Alfred Rosenberg and even a secretary to Hitler. The former is a distinct possibility. As we have noted in the first installment of the series, there were ties between Rosenberg and the ABN, though generally not as strong as is often assumed. The Tecos appear to have forged ties with the ABN pretty early in the game, so there is a certain sense and certain sense to the Rosenberg connection. 
The Andersons also alleged that the Nazis looked to Gallardo to establish a private Mexican army that could be used against the United States. Now, Keith, you found these allegations compelling, right? I mean, certainly the Tecos developed a paramilitary arm, as we shall discuss in a bit. But there were also allegations that there were other paramilitary groups active concurrently with the early Tecos, right? Well, from my read, there's there's never been any kind of shortage of paramilitary groups in Mexico, like ever. Right. So um, the Tecos got started. In the early 30s or in in the late 30s and about uh, 20 years later, you know, there's another group forming in Puebla to the south called El Yunque, which means the anvil. But I mean, Mexico, as we talked about, it's been at war in one form or another almost since it began, whether it was Spain or France or itself or the Indians or against its young, as it was in the Cold War, just like most of the world. And, uh, you know, 1968 becomes a focal point for this war against the young all over the world. There's a there's a book uh, by Mark Kurlansky called 1968, the year that rocked the world, which gets into these events all over the globe where student movements and young people trying to rise up were being put down with, you know, varying degrees of brutality everywhere. And and in 68, <clears throat> the Mexican anti-communist group Femico uh, was officially about a year old, starting in 67, just in time to join the newly formed World Anti-Communist League. <clears throat> so in 68, um, the Olympics were going to be held in Mexico City. And that year, there were a bunch of protests and there was gang warfare, literally uh, plaguing the whole nation. And uh, a march of about 10,000 people convened on something called the Plaza of the Three Cultures in uh, Mexico City. And the government and their paramilitaries opened fire on them, killing something like three to four hundred people. Um, and this was just like a, a deeply traumatic experience for, uh, for for Mexico ever since. It was like like worse than a JFK, worse than a Madero assassination. You know, um, it was called the Tlatelolco massacre. So you think Spanish is hard to pronounce. How about Aztec Tlatelolco? Um, but notably the gunmen were all wearing these white gloves on their left hand. And the white hand is the name for the death squad network that prosecuted these dirty wars all over central and South America, you know, during the cold war, all the way up into the eighties. Um, and this took, this took place 10 days before the Olympics. And, you know, it really quieted the place down, (laughs) uh, in advance of the Olympics starting, unfortunately. Um, and then a few years later, there's this other massacre taking place. And this one was called El Alconazo, which means the hawk attack. And this was uh, at Corpus Christi in towards the south of Mexico and uh, it killed about 120 people, including a, a, a young teenage boy. Um, but the common link between those two um, and no doubt others was the presence of these alzones which means uh, falcon, that's H-A-L-C-O-N-E-S. So you've got your tecos, which means owl in Spanish, and now you've got your alzones, which means hawks, you know, the the bird of prey theme coming through here. But the falcons uh, is a a paramilitary group trained by the Mexican equivalent to the FBI called the DFS. And Jorge Prieto Lorenz, and we've talked about him, 
in previous shows, like I think it was the APACL one. He was a leader in the old um, committee, Inter-American Committee for the Defense of the Continent. And later he would be part of Femico, and of course he was a techo. But he was also a member, and this would have been later in life, of course, uh, of the Halsones. And uh, in fact, he'd been credibly accused of, of having started it. Uh, the Halsones, and I'll read a little, a little history here from uh, from Spanish blogs. I've been I've been checking out these blogs over the last couple of years, and Google Translate will translate them for you, which helps a little white gringo like me understand some of this stuff. Um, but here's here's a here's a quote. Okay, Jorge Prieto Lorenz disappeared from the national political scene until the 1940s. When in 1945 and being a, when in 1945, he was a contributor to the newspaper El Universal and he supported the presidential candidacy of Padrilla Penaloza, Penaloza. But at the end of the 50s, in the early 60s, he was accused of founding and directing the Anti-Communist Association of the Americas and of being behind the National Anti-Communist Party making anti-communism a lucrative business since he was financially supported by the American embassy in Mexico. And even in 71, he was accused of founding the paramilitary group known as the Alzones. So um, it doesn't exactly go to your question, but I mean, the answer is there's all kinds of different paramilitary groups, you know, and some of them were kind of contemporary and it's just kind of this network. They were doing it in other countries as well. Um, this was the white hand kind of network, but yeah, the Tecos and the Alsonis, they, they, they wreaked havoc. And this is during that period, you know, 68 to early seventies, a lot of these things were just put down. We talked about it in Japan. Uh, you got Kent state here in the United States, you know, mm. 10 soldiers and Nixon coming. <clears throat> um, it wasn't, it wasn't just in one place. It was all over the place. So, yeah, it was, um, a very volatile time, really beginning in 68 and continuing up through um, really the 80s in certain parts of the world. Yeah. All right. So let's really get into the uh, post-war years in earnest now. Okay. So Gallardo does not appear to have been hindered, especially by being a Nazi collaborator in any way. Uh, he permanently settled in, was it Gallardo? Guadalajara. Okay, in Guadalajara, the second largest city in Mexico and where the Cristeros originated from. It was also the nation's financial center. There he ingrained himself with many of the conservative financial leaks of the nation. Earlier, he had established the Autonomous University of Guadalajara in 1935. Keep that university and the city in mind as we shall return to them time and again going forward. It was from this power base that Gallardo crafted the modern-day Tecos organization. Gallardo was also busy establishing contacts with the post-war fascist international as well during this time. He likely had ties to the Romanian Iron Guard during the war. The Tecos later established close ties with the guard, with a particular guardist, uh, Jorge Sima, then living in Madrid. They likely based their sales structure off of the guard. Now, Keith, there are also some indications that uh, Gallardo wrote under a Romanian pen name uh, during this time as well, right? Yeah, but you just brought something up that I want to I want to I want to remember, which is um, Guadalajara was 
according to what I've read, was the where the the original OG Mexican drug cartel, the Guadalajara cartel, started, and the padrino of that was, I believe, a man named Felix Gallardo. And I've wondered and I've wondered, any relation? Any relation? You know, I don't know. So I don't want even want to speculate. But sharing the same city and the same uh, surname is definitely suggestive of something. Um, but yeah, he, uh, Gallardo, wrote under a, uh, a Romanian pen name and a French one, too. Um, and, and there's this uh, this blog, I think I'm, I may have mentioned the name of it, it was called The Spectator. And uh, this is a source for a lot of the stuff that I've learned about the Mexican far right over the last couple of years and especially over the last few weeks. Um, so people that really dug into this guy have suggested that Gallardo wrote under the pen name Trian Romanescu as well as Maurice Pinay. So under Romanescu, he wrote books with titles like Betrayal of the West and The Great Jewish Conspiracy. And of course, these have got the Masonic Square and Compass and the Star of David on the covers, you know, just in case you need, you know, in case you need a reminding of what they're talking about when they're saying Betrayal of the West. Um, and then under the name Maurice Pinay, which is interesting because Pinay being the yeah, right. So he's got the same name as the Le Cercle guy. Um, he wrote a book called The Plot Against the Church. Right. So all these books are of a piece. And he wasn't the only person writing this stuff. Um, but it's a body of work that basically it's a refresh of the protocols of the learned elders of Zion with a Catholic traditionalist perspective. So I think the author of the Spectator blog has a blog under the name Traian Romanescu. It's T-R-A-I-N, no, how do you say it? T-R-A-I-A-N Romanescu, E-S-C-U. And you can look it up and translate it. Um, but in Romanescu's books, you'll see this photograph of the author accompanying this impressive you know, biography. And the photo that is on the back cover of these books, according to this blogger, is actually a person that was once known as the greatest swindler in the world of all time, something like that. His name was Victor Lustig, and he had some famous con where he actually uh, sold the Eiffel Tower to somebody. Does that sound familiar? Um, yeah. I'm only familiar with trying to sell the North Pole. <laughs> Right. I think he would Green, might, Greenland's I, on sale, I heard. But, yeah, uh, yeah. I would have to say if he just only did the Eiffel Tower, though, I mean, I, I believe it was Peter Crosby um, who tried to sell the entire North Pole. So I think Crosby maybe has a little bit better of a claim to the greatest. Uh, and, he, and, he, and he might have, you know, learned a thing or two from Victor Lustig. But apparently they used that guy's photograph to say this is what Tran Romanescu looks like, uh, which is, is just funny because it's just a con. So, um but to your point about Gallardo being charged with developing this anti-American force south of the border, you know, that didn't exactly happen. But what did happen was the creation of these these secret societies like the Tecos and El Yunque. But more importantly, for Latin America as a whole and Mexico and really the whole world, this cottage industry of these virulent 
anti-Semitic, anti-Masonic, and anti-democratic works that laid, you know, modernism, democratic forms of government, being able to get married without the church being involved, all the revolutions from the USA to France to the USSR and beyond at the feet of Jews, 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 right? And they're behind all of communism, et cetera, et cetera, and they all had to be purged by whatever means necessary to make Western civilization great again. And when was it great? 14th century. That's when it was great. <laughs> so it's – You mean – oh, I, I think we'd have to go medievalist. back further. I thought everything since the Renaissance had actually poisoned us. Like maybe the, the, the 12th century maybe would be a little more accurate or – Sure, like, but yeah, definitely the Renaissance is when you know the Jews started replacing us or whatever. Um, so, you know, this little cottage industry gets started, you know, not long after World War II. I mean, the plot against the church came out in 61 in Mexico and 67 in the United States, but there was a big transfer of the propaganda that underpins, I'm sorry, I'm going to say it, all, the bedrock of all modern conspiracy mongering is 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 the protocols <laughs> and all this stuff that these, these layers on top of it like the plot against the church and the betrayal of the west or whatever um and they're going hard on this within a decade of the war ending so you know the pen is mightier than the sword right so uh he he, he fulfilled his mission even if it wasn't you know death squads against the americans or whatever um he definitely poisoned the well and poison the minds of a lot of people, uh, especially in Mexico, but also in other parts of Latin America and the United States. So that's important, and it's yeah, it's, it's awful, but it's important. Absolutely, absolutely. Now let's uh, let's get into another little interesting digression here. Um, going back to the Iron Guard for a minute, um, the Guard were nominally an Orthodox-leaning organization. However, they cultivated some interesting contacts. One of them was Mircea Lied, the famed mythologist, and another was Julius Evoli, the infamous Italian philosopher and cultist. Now, sadly, little is known about the actual ritualism of Atecos, but there are indications that it was of an occultic nature. A 1970 raid by Mexican authorities produced several bizarre masks that were apparently worn during their ceremonies. And of course, there's the group's owl symbolism. The owl has long been associated with paganism and the occult, going back to Minerva and continuing up through the modern Bohemian Grove. Um, so why would a fanatical Catholic organization adopt such a symbol? Certainly this um, baffled Stefan Pisani, who in his report to Wackel about the Tecos, I believe dedicated, what, like a half a dozen pages to uh, addressing the owl symbolism without actually coming up with a single concrete reason as to why they would use the bloody thing. Anyway. Well, it's, it's, it's obvious. It's a bird of prey. Well, yes, I guess there is a whole bird. It, makes, it yeah. makes a creepy noise. He can see you and you can't see him. And when you go through the gates of the Autonomous University of Guadalajara, which is their headquarters, the, there's little owls everywhere. And you feel like you're being watched and you are being watched. And by the way, to this day, the soccer team of the UAG Autonomous University is the Tecos. That's their soccer team. That's their mascot. Yes. No kidding. 
Oh, yes. So yes. if you go to YouTube and Google Techos, you're going to watch soccer highlights. No, no joke. Yes, yes. Well, they uh, certainly have a sense of humor that uh, cannot be denied, I suppose, on this level. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's uh, it's too bad Posny didn't have you to work with, Keith. Uh, I think you actually just provided a much more compelling account than the great technocrat did. <laughs> well, all right. My new record's going to have a song about owls on it, so no relation, but I've, <laughs> I've, I've given it, I've given it some thought. So anyway, you were saying. All right. If the Techos did not have ties to some proto-version of the anti-Bolshevik bloc of nations during World War II, they most assuredly did have a connection by 1957, specifically with the infamous Ukrainian wing that we have spent so much time discussing over the course of this series. Even earlier, they had forged links with the Arab League in 1952 and with the Peronists in Argentina around the same time frame as well. It was also in Argentina that they forged ties with a priest who would become a driving ideological influence on the Tecos. He was naturally a Jesuit priest, like many of these figures, named Julio Mineville. Is that how it is? Mineville? I think it's Mineville or Mainville. Mainville we're, we're, the... we're, butcher, we're butchering it left and right. Just go with it, man. It's good. All right, we'll, we'll go with <laughs> Mineville then. Mineville was described as the spiritual leader of the Tecos. He authored a series of books that denounced the world's plagues, which included the Jews, of course, Freemasons, and liberal elements of the Vatican. The Tecos routinely handed out copies of his works at the various anti-communist conferences that they frequented. Mineville apparently didn't take his anti-Semiticism far enough, however. It was widely believed that the Tecos were behind one of the most notorious anti-Semitic tracts of the post-war years. It was called The Conspiracy Against the Church. Yes. Keith, uh, do you want to take us through the strange history of the good old conspiracy against the church? Yes, also called The Complot or The Plot Against the Church. I kind of referred to it a minute ago. Um, <clears throat> again, the Spectator blog and Passoni. <laughs> and Passoni stuff at the Hoover Institution archives. Uh, you know, they're in largely in agreement with each other. And reading the Spectator blog, uh, you know, some of these entries were from like 10 to 12 years ago. And you can see how much the author of that blog had uh, gotten right um, compared, you know, if you compare it with what Passoni put in there. Um, but uh, a, a big exposer of this stuff, almost like a budding Peter Dale Scott of Mexico. Um, the uh, the journalist Manuel Buendia, and there's a book about him and what he found out and how he died called Eclipse of the Assassins, um, because he was he was assassinated and I think 84 in May during an actual solar eclipse. I remember being a little kid in Texas during that eclipse, and I was at my nana's house checking it out like this little. Um, the shadows and you know what it happens during the eclipse the the way the sunlight reflects off of things is totally different just tripping out on it and then later on realizing like wow while i was a little kid tripping out on the light show at my nana's house this guy was being gunned down uh, on the street um yeah so anyway this guy did a lot to expose um this whole group and and that book and gallardo and all that 
and I haven't read the book, The Complot, and I'm not going to because it's it's obviously a bunch of poison. Um, but like I said, the 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 sources are the Spectator blog, which draws a lot off Buendia's work, and then of course Pasoni's analysis. Um, and I'm pretty sure Pasoni was a Catholic himself. I might be wrong about that. Um, I wouldn't really. But Stefan Pasoni, go ahead, man. Came from like Austria originally, correct? Yeah, yeah, he was Austrian. I, I think he was Catholic, but I, I'm not sure. Um, but what I do know is he was a an accomplished air strategist, Pasoni. Uh, something that we would today call a a, a scientific racist who gets mentioned in the book by William Tucker's uh, The Funding of Scientific Racism. He wrote a book called The Geography of Intellect with Pioneer Funds, co-author being none other than Nathaniel Weil, if that rings any bells. Uh, but Pasoni, he was kind of like one of these architects, the, the concepts for the Strategic Defense Initiative, the Star Wars stuff, right? And you know all about this, Recluse, I'm just for your readers that may not. Um, but he was coming into my scope uh, because he was a member of the American Council for World Freedom, the Wackle chapter that got in 69 and then joined Wackle formally in 70. Um, so it's it's kind of amazing that the American Council for World Freedom guys uh, felt the need to take this deep dive into the techos with the understanding that they were these neo-Nazi guys, but yet Yaroslav Stetsko was fine. Uh, you know, like the, the, these techos, these Mexican guys, they're, they're a problem. They're way too Nazi. But like, <laughs> what do you, what do you think Yaroslav? Oh yeah. You know, come on, man. But it, so it's weird. They're, they're picking their battles, which, but which is even more ridiculous. Cause like you're saying, I mean, Pisani's a guy who basically wrote a full blown tract on scientific racism. And this was the guy that they tapped to like, try to assess the fascism of the techos. I mean, it's yes. It's and the, the, and that's my, that's my point. That's my point. You know, like, so before you talk about what he had to say about him, you gotta, you gotta point out Pisani himself was not some left winger. I would call him a right wing extremist. Um, just like the rest of the American wackle guys, they call themselves new, right? I call them fascist light, whatever. Um, but it seems like with the, with the techos, he and the rest of the American wackle guys, you know, hit their limit. So Pasoni was a student of communism because to be a world-class anti-communist, you had to know your enemy. And he definitely did. So, when this right wing guy like this offers this verbose, you know, thorough critique of a group like the Techos and the weird books they were putting out, you know, it's 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 worthy of paying attention. You know, uh, this is a guy who ideologically would would love to find as much common ground as possible with them. And, and, and the fact that he couldn't is pretty telling. So, in fact, the student of communism, Pasoni thought that the author of the complot and for that matter Romanescu had a pretty poor understanding of communism itself and he thought that the author had a poor understanding of geopolitics and history generally and uh, to give one example um, there's this emphasis on naming names in the complot you know the heads of the supreme soviet are deemed to be made up of you know this many number of jews and the complot names all the names and it's you know, it's like it's like some McCarthyite stuff. I have here the names of all of these 
communists, it's kind of like that. Or today would be the uh, the binder. So I have in this binder all of this. You know, there's nothing there, but I have a binder. Um, and Pasoni goes a step further. He's like, you know, these guys made up all these names, and they made up names that sound like they could possibly be Jewish, and so they just say, well, they're Jews. And he's like, by that logic, Dr. Walter Judd, you know, big China lobby guy that we talked about before, well, his name kind of sounds like Jude or Judd, you know, does <laughs> this mean Walter Judd's a Jew? Um, and then he goes on to say that, you know, in fact, if you really look into it, which you can do, author of the complot, you'll find that the actual names of the original Supreme Soviet did have a lot of Jews in them. And here's, you know, some of those names and, and to which Pasoni says, and so what, you know, um, the Soviets went on to do their own pogroms and purges against Jews and Masons in later years. Um, so, you know, who cares? Um, he, he also mentioned in, in his dissection of this book that a lot of the footnotes are based on a book by, uh, Leon, Muerin, M-U-E-R-I-N, Jesuit, late Archbishop of Port Louis, who got a lot of his information from Leo Taxel, right? Uh, He was like one of the uh, the original Masonic uh, tracks that started to, or not the original, but one of the most notorious ones from the late 19th century, right? Right, right. The Leo Taxel guy. So they're building off these earlier, you know, anti-Masonic stuff that, that was, it's all made up. You know, a lot of it anyway, and it, it just like doesn't matter. Like it's it's even better if it's not true, it gives you something to believe in. I don't know, but I, I should bring into this um, Pedro del Valle, and this is yes, this is yes. this I was is interesting ask about the Order of Saint John ties. Well, you know, and for those of your, your listeners who may not know, Pedro del Valle was uh, a lieutenant general in the U.S. Marine Corps, uh, recognized for. Battle of Guadalcanal, especially. Uh, he was definitely in that fabulous MacArthur boys clique and uh, hardcore anti Semite, uh, definitely a traditionalist Catholic fascist, and a very dedicated member of Charles Pichel's Shikshini Knights of Malta, our American P2. Uh, good buddy with uh, General Ted Walker, uh, who's the main entree in James Caulfield's. Uh, General Walker and the murder. What? You said Ted Walker. I believe you mean Edwin Walker, right? They called him Ted. Oh, okay, yeah. okay, my mistake. That was his, that was his, that's what his buddies called him. Uh, <laughs> but uh, that the the murder of President Kennedy, General Walker. And if you, if you look at that book, it's like all over the Shikshini Knights of Malta. I got that book earlier this year, and it's like, wow, I know all these names from going through Del Valley's papers, which you and I have been doing over the last year and a half. So. So in in you know in about this Jewish Masonic conspiracy that these guys are all over all the time, you can see it in the correspondence in Pedro del Valle stuff. He's writing back with his fellow MacArthur boys like uh, Stratemeyer and Wiedemeyer and others, and and you can see in their shorthand they're talking about the Yid Mas, you know Yid being of course a derogatory term for Jews and Mas being a shorthand for Masonry, and they're just blaming everything on that and their private correspondence to each other. It's, it's great. He's also super pro white Russian. Uh, but I repeat myself cause you know, the protocols were after all a white Russian artifice, but, 
But you and I, you know, recluse, we've we've hired researchers to get into his papers at the University of Oregon uh, over the last couple of years, mostly in context of, of his involvement with the Shikshini Knights. And, that, and that's that's been a real education that you can't get in any book. Right. But I'm bringing him up in the complot context because of this. OK. In some of his outgoing correspondence, he's writing to and from his fellow Shikshini Knights, uh, Frank Capel, uh, the publisher of the Herald of Freedom, hardcore theocratic fascist Catholic activist in his own right in the Shikshini Knight, like I said. So and here's Del Valley. I was going to say a perfect member for the Shikshini Knights. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And so here's Del Valley sending uh, his comments on the Complot manuscript back to Capel. And this is in 64. So it's like three years after it first gets published in Spanish, and it's about three years before it gets published in the United States. And um, and I noticed this because when I was looking through Pasoni's report again, he mentions that the first printing in English of the book was through an outfit called the Christian Book Club, which he implies might just be a mailing address. But if you look into it, this is the same publisher that put out Del Valle's autobiography, Semper Fi, 76. So that that was like, whoa, okay. It's Del Valle's same publisher is putting out the complot, and he's apparently seen an advanced copy of it and is offering his his comments on it to to Frank Capel. So so from that, you can see these two things. These, work, these new works are coming out of Mexico, and the old right or the hard, hard out past the John Birch Society Liberty Lobby plumage of the far right wing is helping get them out to American audiences. And um, Del Valle, meanwhile, big time Francoist, his fellow knight, uh, Charles Willoughby, was definitely in that camp, too. And these guys visited Franco and apparently coordinated with his government on some level. And I guess to that, you could add all the other kind of quizzling types who found refuge in Franco, Spain after the war. And that would include the Romanian Iron Guard. But Keith, uh, Michael A. Hoffman told us that uh, Franco Spain was a bastion of uh, Christian freedom. Yeah, I guess so. Uh, Dan, <laughs> the the uh, the former defense secretary under Franco uh, said in Franco Spain, Gladio was the government. <laughs> so I guess you know you pick your poison. Um, but you know a lot of these far right types in the United States, like William Buckley, and. Uh, and uh, Marvin Liebman, who would have balked at the characterization, but too bad, Marvin. Um, you know, they they were big time. They love Franco. They called him a Carlist, and they thought Pinochet was a good model, you know, of what a good Latin American dictatorship should look like. Mm-hmm. But I digress. Anyway, Buendia accused the Tecos of being influenced by or in contact with the Romanian Iron Guard. Um, and it's, you know, it's, it's, you know, back to Spain, though, it's like the mirror image of Cuba to me in the, in the Cold War era. It's like literally this backstop of Europe right there on the Atlantic. And we say, well, we defeated fascism in World War II, but, well, we didn't in Spain, you know, and we say we defeated communism in 1990, but not in China and not in Cuba. And, you know, we didn't exactly invade Cuba after the Berlin Wall came down and when the Soviet Union was in disarray and being kind of picked apart and turned into a mafia state. 
through the Vulcans or whatever. You know, we didn't invade Cuba. Um, well, in fairness it, to us at that point, I think I think they kind of felt that Cuba maybe had enough after uh, the South Africans had finished with them in the uh, Angolian conflict. I believe that was uh, the, what was it? I believe the South Africans had actually like rounded up prostitutes that they knew were um, infected with AIDS and had sent them to the Cuban camp. And that had essentially sparked a massive um, outbreak of AIDS. <laughs> Cuba, where there really hadn't been any previous instances of it. So, um, wow. knowing that, it might have been kind of thought, well, we we just had the South Africans do a number on the <laughs> Cubans. They they maybe have had enough for the time being. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that, there's a reason, I guess. Uh, meanwhile, like I looked it up the other day because I had this weird thought, like we we let Cuba stay there for some kind of reason. You know, what is it? And one thing you can say is all those anti-Castro Cubans have been a very reliable voting block, delivering electoral votes to Republican candidates in almost every election since 1960. <laughs> so there's a good reason not to, you know. And an, another reason is to leave Cuba there so that it agitates and scares the hell out of all the other Latin American groups that are scared of big bad Cuba and having some kind of uh, – Castro type rebellion come to their country and it makes them fight harder. I don't know. You know, yes, I know they tried, Cuba I know they tried yeah. to kill him, but yeah, yeah. I mean, even though Cuba hasn't even had the, uh, the ability to even deploy forces really outside of uh, its own country since what, I mean, almost 30 years now or something like that. I mean, basically Cuba's any kind of like military threat ended when the Soviet union cut off military aid. I mean, it, it does not have the resources to do anything on its own. Yeah, and, and I'm speculating about what the whole Cuba thing's about, but I'll just I'll leave it at you know if you want to make a beautiful anti-communist pearl, you first need an irritating grain of sand. You know. That was beautiful. But uh, yeah, yeah. So, it, and I hope it's okay if I refer to people like William Buckley and them as far-right extremists. I hope that doesn't, you know, I I come from the you know. Reagan is the devil. George H.W. Bush invented AIDS and 9-11 was an inside job school of thought. So well, just uh, remember, I mean, William Buckley can't help friends, man. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That one. Uh, well, anyway, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll get off the speculation there. But as you were saying, sir. <laughs> All right. Well, how much mojo the Tecos really had prior to the 1960s is a little debatable. But during the early part of that decade, the money spigots from the north really started to flow. Remember the Autonomous University of Guadrahia? Oh, talking about Guadalajara. We Guadalajara that we were talking about a couple of minutes ago? Well, actually, now more like about 30 or 40 minutes ago. But um, <laughs> that was a pathetic institution for years, just barely scraping by with only a few thousand in funding year to year. But all of that changed around 1962. It was then that the UAG managed to procure funding from various American NGOs such as the Rockefeller, the Ford, and the Carnegie Foundation. Very much the holy trinity there. They also received funding from the U.S. Agency for International Development, which for years was used as a funding conduit by the CIA. Yeah. Reportedly, the man most responsible <laughs> for raising up the UAG was an American consul to Guadalajara during the early 1960s, one Oscar Wiegand. 
Eigend, something like that. W I E G A N D. A U.S. citizen who was born in Mexico City. Wiegand apparently arranged a lot of the NG, NGO funding for the UAG. He even re relocated to Guadalajara for a time to oversee the development of the university. At the same time, he was also on the faculty at the University of Texas at Austin. This campus was, of course, famous for spawning the Texas counterculture that produced the legendary 13th floor elevators and other early Texas psychedelia. The campus yeah, also... That was great. The campus <laughs> also witnessed the horrendous killing spree of Charles Whitman from the sniper's nest at the university's tower in 1966. That wasn't so groovy. Oh, he no, was... no, wait. Pause, pause. Your listeners, when you hear this, go, go Google Kinky Friedman Ballad of Charles Whitman. <laughs> it's a great song that whole album's like a time capsule for 2020 but you were saying yes yes needless to say the pairing of the techos <clears throat> one of the most blatantly anti-semitic and neo-nazi organizations of the post-war years with ngos such as those sponsored by the rockefeller family was odd to put it mildly the techos were fanatically anti-american or at least allegedly and routinely denounced the Rockefellers as part of the Jewish world conspiracy. And yet, the Techos had no problems taking their greenbacks, and the Foundation apparently had no problem with lavishing them with funds. One of the many curiosities surrounding Los Techos, to be sure. Okay, Keith, let's start tying the Techos into the Waggle Network. First off, take us through Los Tecos' relationship with the Latin American Anti-Communist Confederation, or CAL, as it was known by its Spanish acronym. Well, that's an easy one, finally, recluse. Um, the Teco structure was said to be that of a secret society within a secret society. right? So the, the inner circle of the leadership of the Tecos was supposed to have been unknown even to the rank and file techos and the students of the university were like another layer removed from even that outer layer so the techos were like the nerve center in turn behind the uh mexican anti-communist confederation also called femico uh formed in the period between the apacal super committee meeting and the official rollout of WACL, like I said, in 67. So when that happened, Femico was the off-the-shelf uh, Mexican WACL chapter. And then Femico was, in turn, the organizing nucleus, bringing together the Transnational Congreso Anticommunista Latinoamericano, or CAL, which debuted in 72 at the Mexico City WACL conference, right? So... That was the first WACL conference outside the Asian native territory of WACL. And uh, as we said in previous podcasts, the WACL was basically APACL going worldwide. And uh, so, in, so in WACL, APACL was the Asian regional umbrella over all the Asian countries. The European Freedom Council and later Euro WACL was the European regional affiliate with lots of help from the ABN, et cetera. And then in Latin America, the CAL was supposed to be the Latin American regional affiliate with all these chapters, national chapters underneath that umbrella. So to uh, continue with our adventures in mispronunciation here, we'll call it El Gran Cebollo de los Tecos, which would mean the big onion 
of the tecos, right? Um, Cal is the outermost layer of the onion. Femico is the Mexican nerve center behind that. And the tecos run Femico. And by extension, the tecos, therefore, you could say, run CAL. And so this is the big, great big transnational anti-communist alliance, which uh, was becoming, you know, the appendage of Wackel. And it's run by the Mexican Wackel chapter, which is basically belongs to the Tecos. Now, who that secret organization was at the very heart of it, I'm going to say, I'll offer a little speculation and say, you know, somebody close to Charles Willoughby, somebody headquartered out of Franco, Spain. Mm. I, and I don't really know, but um, yeah. Yeah, so that's that's my take on that. I mean, they, they kind of were the nerve center behind the whole thing. All right, so, okay, let's get in. You've hinted at this a little bit, but let's get into the Tecos attempted takeover <clears> back <throat> in the 1970s. I mean, obviously, this was a major concern of some of the American League members, uh, specifically Stefan Pisani and some of the others. Uh, are there any more details to that attempted takeover you wanted to go over with us now? In the 70s, yeah. Um, so, uh, WACL was an, a non-governmental organization, but it but it had its own you know, kind of like parliamentary procedures. Um, so it's all about the votes. And if you could flood the zone with your own people, then you have the votes to take over, right? Uh, we talked about this with the ABN really wanting to be at the table when WACL was formed because they could flood it with their people. Well, the Latin Americans kind of did that. Um, the 72 conference was in Mex uh, hosted by Femico in Mexico City. And by the way, Del Valle got invited to this. I don't know if he went. He was kind of telling people I'm too old to be traveling at this point in his life. But he, he got the invite in Spanish. So you, you got to wonder. Um, but, yeah, whoever would host this year's conference would become the leadership organization for WACL for the next year until the next conference. And they would pass on the baton to, you know, year after year. Right. So in 72, the Tecos, in the form of this newly inaugurated CAL, uh, they assumed control of the whole league for that next year. And the next year it was supposed to go to Britain, where one Joffrey Stewart Smith of the uh, Foreign Affairs Circle, that was the British Wackel chapter, was to take the mantle of leadership the following year. But, but during that year that CAL was nominally controlled uh, – with Wackel, they, they, they brought in all these various Latin American chapters from this whole continent that didn't previously have that representation. So they brought in all these votes. And this is when the anti-American, anti-Yankee, anti-British sentiments really came to the surface and, uh, and really threatened to take Wackel into this medievalist, anti-modern protocols of Zion kind of uh, direction, you know. Um, and this was this was like to give some perspective, kind of a long simmering thing, too, because, I mean, some of the Tecos members had been uh, kind of like lingering in the background of the 58 conference. Right. Uh, and there was a certain degree of animosity over the fact that it hadn't Wackle hadn't essentially been founded then, if I'm uh, not mistaken. For Pisani, yeah. Or, or that it was an afterthought when Wackle did finally form and uh, Prieto Lorenz and Carlos Pinabato, the Brazilian admiral, were pretty upset that. That they didn't adhere to the 58 program, you know, but more than all that, Cuba, how could they let Cuba be a thing? It's a betrayal, you know, like, why haven't they killed Castro 
why have they stymied uh, native, you know, anti-Castro Cubans who would really love to get the leash off and go after this guy and the Americans won't let him. And the State Department tells us to stand down. And what the hell are they doing? You know, this is I thought they were supposed to be our anti-communist allies and they're willing to just let Cuba just be there right off of their own coast of Florida. You know, so uh, meanwhile, um, they, you know, delisted Taiwan from the U.N. and gone and visited Red China, the Nixon, you know. So there was there was some, you know, some meat on the bone there for 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 that kind of sentiment. You know, there was enough pretty big events that had happened that that could give you a reasonable doubt as to which side the Yankees were really on. Uh, But whatever the reason, you know, they. They they let their they let their anti-American flag fly pretty hard, and maybe that's what the real problem is. And you know, Stetsko never did that, so maybe that's why he was okay. But you know, but the point is, they did take over, and they ran they ran Wackle for the following year, and the Taiwanese were fine with it, and it pissed off the Yankees, which had just screwed over Taiwan. So he's like, so be it. And Kuching Kang, the leader of APACL. And the wackle sort of honorary president for life, you know, would try to wha- try to rally him and get the constituents back together. But f- but for a minute, they were fine with it. Um, but the ACWF, the Americans, were the new addition to the wackle fold, and uh, it had formed the ACWF formed with the idea of being that American branch, and it had just barely happened in '70, and two years later. The Techos just plant this huge PR problem for the ACWF right out of the gate. And Stefan Pisoni, of all people, was assigned to investigate. And I say of all people because, you know, like I said, he's kind of Nazi adjacent in his own way. Um, but but I, I guess the difference uh, with like Stetsko's of the world of the far right, you know, they could present well in mixed company and not be super upfront with their anti-American sentiments and anti-modern sentiments, whereas Femico and the CAL were much more raw and uncultured about it. It was kind of this brute force anti-communism with a strong emphasis on anti-Semitism and anti-Masonry and paradoxically also an anti-Pope bent. They accused the Pope of being a drug addict and a crypto Jew himself and a homosexual. And, you know, this is in response to like, Vatican II and the liberation theology and, you know, things like that. So they're attacking the Pope from the right, which is crazy. Um, and I'll read a quote, a couple, I got a couple of quotes from Pasoni's uh, papers um, that are interesting here. There's a clear eyed perspective on this you know Pasonis of the world they lived through world war ii they lived through totalitarianism whether it was nazism or communism and whatever their political sentiments were you know it was it was still within living memory and a lot of these people like Pasoni had lived through you know this cataclysmic war and uh but anyway let me read a quote it would be a mistake to forget that anti-semitism and anti-masonism serve to conceal anti-Americanism. Whatever one may think of Masons, they were heavily involved in the American Revolution and related constitutional documents to which American conservatives are dedicated. 
The American Revolution, the Bill of Rights, the U.S. Constitution, and the Declaration of the Independence are ignored in Tekos literature. There is a vast difference between Adam Weishaupt and George Washington, and Americans cannot and must not ignore that nuance. And here's another, another quote from it. I'm just going to read a couple, if that's okay, into the record. Um, quote, there are as yet vague indications that the Tekos aim is to establish, or it has established, a secret international of anti-Semitism. The Tekos undoubtedly regard Wackel as a front organization which could be used to achieve that international. The structure of this incipient international is suggested by the wide distribution and multiple translations of the complot, which is the key work. However, modernism in the Catholic Church is the main target of this effort. And then one more. Uh, it is hoped that the board of the American Council for World Freedom is aware of Soviet and Egyptian activities that are aimed at planting conspiracy theories. The Tekos literature constitutes an attempt to fabricate the super conspiracy which would merge all previous conspiratorial legends an ACWF association with the enemies of the United States is unacceptable. Uh, the Russian revolutions of 1905 and 1917, the Nazis, the Nazoid movements of Eastern Europe, and the Arab failures offer ample proof that conspiracy myths are of no help in defeating communism. With the possible exception of German leaders in 1917, the Okrana and Hitler were history's foremost, albeit unwitting, promoters of communism. They are also the main promoters of the legends the Tekos are propagating and rejuvenating. And finally, one more time, anti-Semitism is a convenient cover for anti-Americanism. Very interesting. Very interesting. Again, this is not some soft belly yeah. socialist writing this stuff. So it's really interesting to get a guy like that and hear his take in the early 70s on what anti-masonry is really about and anti-semitism mm. you know yeah it's really interesting i mean it seems like essentially he basically took objections to the techo stance on these things because he saw it as a code word effectively for anti-americanism yeah yeah um, and he's like well we don't want to we don't want to sit at the table with these people because <clears throat> we should all be on the same side but they're actually against us and i think they're against newspapers and the printing press and <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much any you know innovation that uh, emerged since the uh, 12th century. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Make Western civilization like it was before the Renaissance. It's like not a good position. I mean, it's modernism is here. It's not going bye-bye, no matter how many weird books you write or people you kill. Yeah. Well, it is certainly a uh, curious state of Affairs. Um, one thing, you know, before we get into the next section, uh, obviously we'll get into this a lot in the next installment. But um, one of the things you guys brought to my attention was the ties the Tecos had to um, Operation Condor. Of course, that's yeah. uh, in some degree of notoriety uh, in recent years. This was, of course, a program that was run by Chile under Pinochet and uh, several of the other southern cone governments. Effectively, it was a, a means of extraordinary rendition where they could go all over the southern cone and later the rest of the world to assassinate um, or capture the uh, rebels that they were seeking. Uh, but it does seem that this whole program of, um, you know, essentially... Uh, leaving your own country, going into another, and uh, eliminating your enemies there sort of had its origins with the Tecos. Uh, could you go into that a little bit for us, Keith? 
Yeah, I don't remember what the acronym refers to, but it was called CONSOMAL, C-O-N-S-O-M-A-L. And the initial discussions for what would later be called Condor uh, were those plans were being hatched at the inaugural CAL conference in 1972. I mean, that's the short way of putting it. They were like, we need, you know, kind of like back in the Apache Wars, the Mexicans in the United States would say, all right, it's okay to come over the border and get these guys because we're all on the same team. Well, it was like that, but on the a whole continental scale. Yeah, because that was security cooperation between these countries where you could, yeah, not not that, that your of, troops can come over here, but like you can tell us who you're after and we'll go get them for you and extradite them back to your country and you can pull their toenails out or whatever you're going to do. Or we'll do it for you, um, you know, obviously it's part <laughs> or of the we, it, Or we have people that can do it if you need it, but you guys are good, right, Mr. Strassner? <laughs> you got this. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it was just really horrendous. And yeah, I mean, that was uh, the way a lot of the sort of Marxist groups had sort of survived in uh, the Southern Cone is that, you know, if you were operating in Chile, then you would cross the border into Argentina. And in theory, the security forces from Chile could not pursue you in this. Um, you know, it became a bit of a sore point for some of the reactionary regimes in that part of the world. So Condor, you know, essentially removed those hurdles. Now you could go cross the border yourself and get them or you could call up the security forces in Argentina. Argentina, they could get them for you or yeah it opened and, up and a, what is it and what is a condor it's another one of these birds of prey birds of right prey. like mm-hmm. a, like a falcon or an owl now you've got a condor and they fly really high for a long time over a broad territory and um you know the united states was okay with this until they started uh trying to assassinate these political figures in uh, the u.s and europe um which whoa 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 but hey whoa stay in your lane guys yeah Uh, But that, of course, was extremely uh, self-serving on our part, um, because effectively what we've been doing since the onset of the Global War of Terror with the Joint Special Operations Command is effectively a global version of Condor, where now the entire world is a battlefield and we will send our troops everywhere to track down terrorists. So Mm -hmm. uh, that is another way how the legacy of this particular group is still with us and on steroids in the 21st century. And that brings us to the next section we're going to get into as to why the techos still matter. You know, we've, uh, that's one reason, and certainly it's not the only one. So, all right. Its legacy, though, is still playing out in Mexico, and this is especially true of the drug cartels and the general corruption. But there's something else, too. That's the Mexican dirty wars that started in that pivotal year of 1968. We don't like to talk a lot about uh, the Latin American dirty wars here in the United States. As Americans, we don't like to hear about uh, the death squads that were necessary to maintain U.S. hegemony in that region of the world. But at least there has been some reckoning for what happened in the Southern Cone. Pinochet may have been nearing death, but he still was arrested while his counterparts in Argentina faced similar consequences. But Mexico? Hardly anyone realizes that there was a dirty war there in the first place. Most people think that the killings just stopped with the football stadium massacre in 68. But they didn't. And arguably, more has been done to cover up in that particular dirty war than any of the others in Latin America during the Cold War. We'll get into that a bit towards the end, but for now, let's focus on the Teco's role in the drug trade. Now, for decades, much of the drug traffic in Mexico was controlled by the Federal Security Directorate, or DFS. 
The DFS was established in 1947 and modeled upon uh, America's FBI. It quickly mm-hmm. forged close ties with the CIA as well. Mm-hmm. It was said that at the founding of the DFS, the structural linkage was instituted between the ruling political class and the drug traffickers. This also ensured that drug traffickers would be frequently employed by the DFS in anti-leftist violence. Can uh, I pause you there? Yeah, I was just about to say, and that's pretty much true of much of the rest of the where uh, gangsters are often used to uh, attack leftists, but go for it. Keith. Yeah, um, you're, there's a, <clears throat> a book that actually tries to get at an actual theory of parapolitics, like really define it. Really look at different examples from the East India Company all the way to the 21st century. Um, and it was edited by a guy named Eric Wilson, who wrote a, another great book called The Spectacle of the False Flag, which is about 9-11 as being like a piece of situation street theater, which is very interesting, along with JFK. But anyway, I'm digressing here. Um, in the book, the book is called Government of the Shadows. And for your listeners that may be want to do some further reading and you have a lot of smart listeners. So maybe they do. I'd highly recommend getting that book. And there's a whole chapter on the DFS and it's uh, cooperation or it's management of the Mexican drug trade by one Peter Dale Scott. That's his contribution to, uh, to that compilation of chapters in that book. You were saying, sir. Oh, Absolutely. So, yes, yes, drug uh, traffickers have a role in a lot of this kind of stuff. Um, and we've already talked about the role of this and some of the other WACL members. I mean, of course, this is uh, quite true of Taiwan, for instance, where the ruling party, uh, the KMT, the Nationalist Chinese, have been implicated in drug trafficking for years. The KMT were, of course, brutal, uh, narco-laden political party, effectively. Uh, and they were also leading figures in WACL and the Asian People's Anti-Communist League for years as well, in addition to uh, being the principal funding arm of the American China lobby. The KMT likely had drug-related dealings in Mexico since prior to the First World War. Regardless, both Douglas Valentine and Peter Dale Scott reported that they had forged ties with the DFS-backed Mexican drug cartels by at least the late 1940s. It's likely that this drug connection would play a crucial role in bringing together future Asian and Latin American partners in WACL. Okay. What's more, the Tecos had managed to recruit DFS agents among its ranks by at least the 1970s, if not much sooner. Now, this is interesting in light of developments among the Mexican drug cartels during that decade. It was during that time frame that the, uh, was it Guadalajara? Mm-hmm. Guadalajara. Okay. The Guadalajara cartel was founded. The Guadalajara outfit was effectively the father of virtually all of Mexico's modern drug cartels. The Tijuana, the Sinaloa, the Juarez, and the Sonora cartels all trace their origins back to the lieutenants and the Guadalajara cartel. Remember, Guadalajara was the home base of the Tecos, okay? Where their university is based, where the time ahead. Uh, Gallardo resided throughout the post-war years. Uh, it also happened to be the base of operations for the Guadalajara cartel as well. And as Keith had alluded to for earlier, the head of uh, the Guadalajara cartel was a guy named Miguel Angel Felix Gallardo. It's kind of interesting, isn't it, folks? Was Felix Gallardo related to the Tecos head? 
Well, we haven't found any indications of that, but yeah, it sure is curious, especially the base of operations being in Guadalajara. Peter Dale Scott reports that Felix Gallardo and his outfit had been enlisted to support the Contras, a project the Wacko was also deeply involved with at the time. Once more, there was the strange assassination of the muckbreaking Mexican investigative journalist Manuel Bundia. And Bundia's death is often blamed on his exposure of the DFS complicity with the Guadalajara cartel. However, as Keith had already alluded to, Bundina had just released one of the first exposés of the Tecos in April of 1984 as well. A month later, he was murdered. Was that just a coincidence, or is this another indication of the complicity between the DFS, the Guadalajara cartel, and the Tecos? Okay, on the topic of coincidences, let us now talk about the White Brigades. These were the private paramilitary outfits that were used to terrorize and liquidate civilian populations throughout Mexico during the 1970s. These forces were raised sometime around 72 by the DFS to continue the work that had begun with the football stadium massacre, an event that resonates in Mexico the same way Tiananmen Square does in China. At least several hundred student protesters were massacred by Mexican security forces, but certainly the death toll has been much debated over the years. Next came the White Brigades, which between 1972 and 1980 are credited with disappearing thousands of the PRI's opponents. Reportedly, only 500 never turned up again, but I have it on good authority that the body count was significantly higher than has ever been publicly acknowledged, and it probably never will be publicly acknowledged. Yeah, that totally. Estimates Rete- should be considered low whenever you read one. Yeah, yeah. Um, no, I have heard stories of entire villages being liquidated and totally wiped off the face of the earth from southern Mexico during this particular era. It was absolutely terrible. It truly was, and we in the United States should never, ever forget that. So, I don't have to forget it. I have a nice wall I can look at. Yeah, I know, I know. You have the That's wall. That's the monument but... to all of that exact stuff you're talking about. It's like if we if we would just let these governments, let the people rise up and just kind of have, you know, a lot of these guys weren't communists. They're more like Bernie Kratz. You know, they want to be a little more like the United States. So land reform, you know, I don't want to live in an oligarchy, much less a theocracy. Well, I guess that makes you a communist. You know what we do to communists? Yeah. And next thing you know, hordes and hordes of refugees fleeing all of this violence and this baked into the cake narco gangster states. You can't mm. make a living. You know mm. what I mean? They so here they, here they come, you know. Well, you know, I mean, they should have just accepted, uh, you know, when their village, village was being massacred on a large scale and uh, going with it, I guess. That's God's will, right? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So. Were the Tecos involved in these shenanigans in the 70s? Officially, no. They just happened to have the same slogan against the red gorilla, the white gorilla, that uh, the white brigades possessed. And that Latin American anti-communist network they controlled, the CAL, it maintained its own impressive network of death squads the Tecos had helped groom. Sometimes these forces called themselves the White Hand, the White Force, and... White Brigade. Surely all of this was just a coincidence. But if I could indulge in some baseless speculation for just a moment, 
In Italy, the Christian Democratic Party, a pro-U.S. center-right uh, party, maintained a near monopoly on the Italian government during the Cold War. It was aided in these efforts by a secret society known as Propaganda Dewey, or P2, and the P2 frequently attracted militant far-right anti-U.S. elements. And yet, the likely role it played in the strategy of tension pushed many of these forces into actions that were system-sustaining to the Christian Democratic Party and, ultimately, the United States. Okay? Mexico was mm-hmm. ruled for over 70 years by the PRI. The PRI are often depicted, uh, often depicted itself as being anti-American and socialist, though it was largely a creation of these United States and center-right politically at best. Now, it was widely despised by the Tecos, who bore striking similarities to the P2 on any number of levels, as we kind of hinted at throughout this But despite the anti-American sentiments of the organization, it appears to have engaged in violent activities much like the P2 that decimated truly anti-American movements and ultimately sustained U.S. hegemony in Latin America. One could argue that both secret societies effectively found a way to channel the anti-American sentiments of far-right elements into constructive efforts to maintain the American empire. But again, that's just baseless speculation on my part. Keith, do you have anything to add to that? Mm, yeah, I could. That's that's something I could go on about for a while, but I, I'll try to keep it short. Um, <clears throat> but you know, using an org that's against you on paper, but it's actually your tool. Um, I got one for that. I read last year um, Dennis King's book on the Larouche people, Lyndon Larouche and the new American fascism. And there's a chapter called conspiracies and code words that gets into the cryptography of LaRouche's weird code language that he was using. And it, and, and and there's a quote from the great Robert Anton Wilson that I'll, I'll read for you. Goes like this. If I were the head of the Illuminati, I certainly wouldn't call it by that name. I'd call it the John Birch society and advertise it as an organization opposed to the Illuminati. That way, I'd be able to rope in all the people who are against the Illuminati and use them as unwitting dupes. This is such a plausible idea that if the Illuminati do exist, they must have thought of this already. (laughs) And there's just like your veil to peel back and go into the twilight zone of secret societies and like, what are they really after and who's really working for who and, well, I mean, it's, to even, this stuff. Yeah. it's, it's even a greater trip because on top of that, I mean, this was around the same time when uh, Raw and a certain Carrie Thornley had initiated Operation <laughs> Mindfuck. Do you know what year yeah. Operation Mindfuck deployed in, Keith? I'm going to guess 68. Yeah, 1968. <laughs> and folks, this is actually where most of these Bavarian Illuminati conspiracy theories that you constantly hear about all the freaking time now online originate from. It was Carrie Thornley and Robert Anton Wilson engaged in Operation Mindfuck that brought this trope to the attention of the American public on what is now a massive scale. Most of the Illuminati stuff was just not present in conspiracy literature prior to then unless you went back 
what, probably to about the 1920s or something when we had an earlier Bavarian Illuminati scale. We actually have a Bavarian Illuminati scale in the United States about once or so every century. Weird uh, aspect of this country, I suppose. Just to but keep yeah. us in line. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, isn't that something, right? Thanks, guys. I know there were libertarians and free thinkers and everything, but doggone it, in spite of themselves, they really breathed a lot of fresh air and light into the you know, conspiracy mongering about a, you know, the Illuminati from 300 years ago or whatever. Again, I would listen to that Richard Spence podcast from the Conspiracy Normal guys, just a demystifying, excellent scholarly take on the Illuminati, the Masons, the KKK, the silver shirts. He goes into all kinds of stuff, but, but so that guy's got a, a lot of years on a, a little amateur like me. Okay. So, I, you know, I, and this is your fault, Recluse. I've been studying the international far right for about six years, maybe more if you count the Dave Emery tip that I got onto earlier. Um, <clears throat> and that's nothing. You know, it's, you, get, you, can, you spend your whole life on this, and I, I've got a long way to go. But a few years ago, reading Sarah Diamond's Roads to Dominion book, and she said something that stuck with me ever since. She was talking about the John Birch Society, and she said that for all their extremist posturing, they were at the end of the day a system-supporting organization. And this little light went off when I heard that, and I've thought about that a lot. It's something that's, you know, was totally against the government, totally against, you know, just these communists under every bed. Eisenhower's a pinko, you know, but at the same time, they're supporting the system, even though they appear to be against it. Supporting it, but also pulling it in a political direction, right? So in the strategy attention years, you, you're mentioning you got these, you know, two different groups of terrorists that hold themselves up to be anti-American. And the slogan back then was, you know, against Soviet iron and American gold, European blood. That was that was one of the slogans, right? You had the neo-fascists. With that kind of slogan, you know, and then you have these Red Brigade communist terrorists. And if uh, if your listeners have ever availed themselves of the BBC Time Watch series on Gladio or even better, um, Anna Sento Bull's book on Italian neo-fascism, you can see these and read these testimonials from these leftist and rightist terrorists, you know, with their anti-Western sentiments for coming up from two different directions. Uh, the rightists were at least a little bit circumspect about it, but the leftists in particular stand out because they, some of these guys went to their graves with total sincerity that they were there to force this crisis of legitimacy on the Italian government, to force it to kind of show its fangs and expose you know, how violent and anti-democratic it really was, as if that would in turn trigger this revolutionary backlash. They were wrong, um, but they really pushed back on the notion that they – at the end of the day, we're a bunch of tools and that their extremist activities and their terrorism were not going to ever lead to some overthrow of the NATO Atlanticist order, but rather serve to reinforce it and cement it into place. Um, again, people like Shorty, which was the nickname for Stefano Della Chai, which also prefigures personalities like El Chapo, which also means Shorty. Uh, oh, yeah. Stefano was more of a, a realist about the role he played in the big gladio scheme. But the point is the left and right extremes 
were both played by NATO and through their fringe dabbling defined the center, the center being both the field of battle and the objective of the struggle. So I think you're on to something with this recluse. It, it might be speculation on your part, but I don't think it's baseless by any means. Um, any kind of strategy of tension, if it's going to work, it's going to have to highlight and boost the fringes against the center. And that's what they did in Gladio and other groups in Western Europe. But that was Western Europe where, you know, it was a socialist system and the great anti-fascist heroes of World War II that defeated the Axis were, in fact, socialists, if not outright communists, uh, like the Red Army, for example. Uh, in Latin America, landscape very different, much younger political landscape, a um, lot more volatile, much less regard for um, the heroes of World War II. No need to tiptoe around the popularity of socialism as you'd have to do in, say, France or Italy because it didn't have the roots in Latin America that it did in Europe. So they just flat out butchered them. On this side of the Atlantic with a wild abandon. Um, but what they always had in common was this idea of defense, self-defense. You know, the propaganda always holds up the enemy as this existential threat. Sometimes it's even like a supernatural or certainly an occult threat. And so then you get to be playing, you know, you get to claim self-defense, you know, and all options are on the table. And the names of these groups, they're, they're always negative. It's always anti. It's never positive. Um, you know, the Inter-American inter Committee for the Defense of the Continent, the International well, Committee for Defense of Christian Civilization. Well, I got to say, the though. Nuclei uh, for the Defense of the State. Go ahead. Uh, Wackel did try to go, I think, with the more positive what in the uh, the post Cold War years like what is it now the World <laughs> Federation for International Freedom or something. freedom and democracy yeah yes World yes. League uh, World League for Freedom and Democracy the Americans had tried to talk the Wackel people into doing that from the 60s like it has to be pro something you can't just be against something the Americans want you to be for something you know young Americans for freedom American Council for World Freedom. So, you know, the, you can see in the correspondence, the doublespeak they're trying to get. But the, the Asians were like, no, we're, we're against communism. That's the common tie here. But um, but the other thing that these groups have in common is this retooling and reverse engineering of the methods of their enemy under that same justification, namely that the uh, the commies started all this. They're insidious and they're have this cellular structure and this low center of gravity. And we have to copy that and use it against them. This is I was talking about this in the last wackle one we did. Um, but this is the idea behind that revolutionary warfare that you've written about and parallel oh, hierarchies. Yes, yeah. uh, which, again, is basically a wholesale co-opting of uh, communist methods, but uh, taken to even greater <clears throat> extremes to best the communists at their own game. Right. So so I've been reading this book the last month about the John Birch Society. And I can't remember the author right now, but it's the subtitle is Conservatism, Conspiracy, and Cold War, I think. Um, but in that book about the John Birch Society, they were criticized by more than one party back in the 60s as being secret society themselves. And they these critics who said they operate in the cellular fashion, the, and it was very remarkably like what communist groups acted like. They even had their own little 
just like the techos, we have a social and a political. Political is another word for, you know, violence. Okay, terrorism. You know, so you got your Minutemen as your political arm, and you got your John Birch Society as your social arm. You know, the, with the propaganda and hearts and minds, and then you've got bullets and bombs on the other side if that doesn't work. Um, and the techos seem to have borrowed uh, the same kind of idea. And also from occult orders uh, as well. You know, their initiation rituals with the masks and all that stuff that you were talking about before. And um, some of these authors, like on these blogs I've been reading, are talking about um, being kind of like Masonic themselves, their initiation rituals and stuff. And then you had to do these certain knocks in a certain order to gain entry into their little secret meetings. And both groups here adopting the very tech of the very thing that they're opposed to the projection, you know, is always a giveaway. Um, so, you know, this, this twilight zone of, well, the John Birch and the Illuminati, you could look at the protocols of Zion as a projection, you know, replace the rabbis with Opus Dei or the SS or Synarchy. Just take all the labels of the side that they're supposedly exposing and then transpose those with, you know, the people that are actually writing it. And it's a real interesting exercise. See how it reads when you change the names around. Um, and then finally, back to Freemasonry thing. You see how in the 18th and 19th century, these lodges are used as these vehicle to overthrow these medievalist governments and these monarchies and colonial governments and, and everything. And, and in the 20th century, you see something like the P2 Lodge in Italy being used not as revolution, but reinforcement to support the center-right Christian democratic parties in Western Europe to lock in the NATO position. And, you know, everything I've read about P2 is so unmasonic to me, given my own experience. It, it just seems more like some kind of Knight of Malta cell in Masonic drag, honestly. Well, yes. Well, I mean, it also, most of the top figures and it were also uh, either Knights of Malta or members of Opus Day. So I'm sure that probably factored into it as well. Yeah, no, no. I mean, it was, it was, I mean, apparently it was real enough and they had charters, which Masonic lodges have to have a charter from another lodge. And, but if you read, as I have Julius Evola's chapter on occult warfare in men among the ruins, you can see him prescribing exactly that you sail under the false flag of your enemy and you let them take the blame. Right. So the biggest and most durable Masonic conspiracies of the Cold War era are not pro-communist. They're anti-communist, anti-revolutionary. Right. But were they really Masonic or was that just a false flag? Was the John Birch Society starting an org called the Illuminati so they could recruit unwitting dupes? You know, uh, this, the, the secret society Twilight Zone can can really make your head spin, but it, it kind of illustrates to me how masonry is at best it's the bus it's never the driver it's never driving the bus um but um but i'll, I'll close you know my last comments here about all this stuff um about the, the masonry thing um you know i met scottish right guys when i was in the masons and they do all their higher degree work in these like weekend or one day classes and all that occult stuff and morals and dogma None of the guys I ever met um, ever cracked that book for more than a minute, you know, 
in the area I live in, there's more uh, Masonic funerals than there are initiations. In fact, some lodges around here are even going to close. That's what I've, I've heard. It's just kind of this dying thing. You had Chris Knowles on here before, and he talked about, you know, the secret societies when they outlive their whatever their mission was or their usefulness, and they just kind of wither and die. And the actual hand of power goes up the bum of some other thing, and it moves through that medium, you know. So um, all of the revolutionary, you know, stuff about masonry is kind of like gone. And so when I joined, it's like, all right. And, and I kind of had the feeling about all that, you know, that it's like there's nothing really crazy going to happen. I'm just going to get to see what it looks like just kind of on paper without there being any kind of other agenda or some species of gang warfare or, <laughs> you know, revolutionary plotting or whatever. And so you step into this this uh, this time capsule relic that very largely conforms to the way it's been for hundreds of years. And uh, what I figured out though, from being in there is I figured out what the anti-Masonic propaganda is really all about in my, I have an opinion about it. I'll put it that way. Um, and I can't say totally for sure. Cause there's all these other secret societies in the U S and there's this golden age from about after the civil war to around the post world war two period. And there's a, a great book called Ritual America, and I think it's Adam Parfrey, I think, that's a co-author on that. And there's all these photographs of the Odd Fellows and the Elks and just all the weird costumes they would have. And, you know, you can go watch the old Flintstones cartoon and you can see Fred and Barney are members of the Loyal Order of Water Buffalo. You remember that? I mean, it's like this real cultural phenomenon, right? So all of these secret societies in the United States have kind of declined. And the town that I live in is like a monument to all of them. There's all these old Knights of Pythias buildings in the Elks Lodge. And, 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 and there's two different Masonic lodges. One's now a museum. The other one is like still going. And all of these things, the membership in all of them is like declined to the point of being like almost gone. Right. So the decline of all of those in the United States, there's more than one cause to it. But I'm going to say I think that anti-Masonic propaganda uh, plays a part in that. And um, what I think it's really about is if, if you remember our fourth generation warfare podcast, we talked about supernaturalizing, you know, the enemy in conspiracy propaganda. You characterize your opponents as these existential threats, these supernatural predators, because it's it makes it easier to get people to, you know, to dehumanize them and maybe yeah, even do violence. Process of dehumanization on them. Right. They're either like subhuman cockroaches or they're like supernatural werewolf predator vampires. And either way, it's like lock and load, right? Um, there's a much more mundane reality if you strip away all of the, oh, it's this cult, whatever. You know, what my experience was, strip away all the teachings that people think that they do and whatever. It's really about what you do. When there's no other agenda and you don't retire to the pub to scheme about something like you might have done 150 years ago. It's a little laboratory of democracy. A Masonic Lodge is like a little bureaucracy, you know, it's like being at a city council meeting. You know, you start out, you say the pledge to the flag. There's a prayer and it's the great architect of the universe. But everybody in there goes to church. It's, you know, it's Jehovah. There's a Bible on the altar. There's a secretary that 
do we approve the meeting minutes from last meeting? You know, here's our correspondence from our fellow lodges. Anything of any importance goes up to a vote. And they have all these titles like worshipful master or whatever. Well, those are officers with a one-year elected term. And again, like those Masons that were being arrested by the French secret police, you know, 200 years ago, whatever, that voting thing was the problem. And so we're talking about the center being defined by the fringe. Well, in this little occulty, mystical twilight world, whatever, behind a, the doors of the Masonic Lodge, I can only speak for the American, Western American experience on this. But what they're doing is playing house. They're playing democracy. They're playing at bureaucracy. And so from that twilight zone radiates out the value of this modeled behavior of a democratic society. And after a while, being in the Masons, I was like, wait, I think this is actually the problem. This is actually what the anti-Mason uh, propaganda is really about. You know, you're still butthurt from the French Revolution and how, <laughs> you know, it became a republic instead of a this iron grip of the pope and the cardinals and the king and the aristocracy. Um, so to come to the to the point, you know, um, when you. You look at these revolutions against these monarchies and against these theocracies, and you see masonry being this vehicle for it. You start to see that's the problem. It's not Masonic sorcery or some occult power. It's 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 democracy itself that's the original sin. And you hear that out of their own mouth. That's that's the far right has a real problem with democracy. Uh, the John Birch slogan: "It's a republic, not a democracy. Let's keep it that way." Uh, Bill Cooper echoed that in his broadcast later on. Recently, this senator from Utah, Mike Lee, had said he tweeted out something about how democracy is not the objective. And so and all, and if you read inside the league, all these death squad leaders, they said the same thing. You know, democracy just leads to socialism and or communism. So that's the problem. Because you give these peasants an inch and they'll take a mile. So. Pasani figured out that anti-Masonry was a code word for anti-Americanism. So what do you then make of the of American anti-Masonry? Right. It's like you're inside the gate hating on it. And in my opinion, it's an antipathy to democracy itself that's behind that kind of propaganda in the United States. And um, so Masonry itself is like a secret society, but it's also system sustaining, as we've talked about. But that system is a problem for theocrats from the Pope on down to American Baptists and Alex Jones is, I guess maybe Alex Jones. I heard him say some nice things about it the other day. It's weird to hear that out of his mouth, but you know what I'm saying? If you want to make America into this medievalist theocracy, you've got to go after Masonry. And, um, I think that kind of stuff has really triumphed in this country. Um, and it's just very interesting to me. And I just wanted to offer that to your listeners about you know what what it's really about it's just my opinion but the techos definitely would have agreed you know that's the problem it gives these little people all these ideas um about self-rule and self-governance and that's a problem so i'll stop there thanks for letting me go on about that because it's that's interesting no that was excellent and uh, i mean certainly a good note to end on i mean certainly um 
kind of seems to be a reoccurring trend, sadly, in the 21st century is the, uh, the decline of democracy the world over. And um, interestingly, it does kind of coincide with this decline in Freemasonry also in, uh, the world over. And obviously, I mean, as we've kind of illustrated throughout this, uh, you know, this installment, the Wackle series, um, there were different types of Freemasonry, different objectives. I mean, certainly I think some of the more Catholic centric ones would not be uh, especially um, downtrodden over the decline of democracy, but uh, maybe not yeah. so much with the Blue Lodges. Maybe. But and it's it OK. You know, I'm not trying to carry a whole bunch of water or be some like arch apologist for it. It's just, you know, it's not to give them a, a pass on everything or whatever and say they haven't gotten up to some bad stuff. But there's so many of them. They're all over the world. They go back centuries. It's never just one thing, you know. But anyway, they've you know, they've ruined the West <laughs> or they <laughs> made the West or they made it, depending on which side of the the uh, the altar you're on in the church right yes sadly though that uh for better or worse is coming to an end now so it would seem at least uh in this brave new world yeah here here at the end no oh. we can only hope though that uh there is a brighter future before us um <laughs> oh, obviously that's always uh, something to find much evidence of at least uh here at the farm but um, I suppose then I should probably wrap up before we get a little too depressing. Um, <laughs> uh, I will say happy birthday to one particular listener out there. This show is for you. You know who you are. Hopefully I did you proud and uh, you will not give me too much shit about the pronunciations. So hopefully at least somebody will get a good laugh out of that. To the rest of you out there, as always, thank you so much for listening and, uh, you know, good night, good luck and stay tuned until next time. <laughs>